This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. The Humanist Report podcast is funded by viewers like you through Patreon and PayPal. To support the show, visit patreon.com forward slash humanist report or become a member at humanistreport.com. Now, enjoy the show. Welcome to the Humanist Report Podcast. My name is Mike Figueredo, and this is the 110th edition of the program. Today is September 7th, and before we get into this gigantic episode, first, I want to take a moment to thank all of these kind individuals that decided to sign up to support us either through Patreon or PayPal. So this week we have Alex Bells, Anita Garrett, Arthur Lee Augustus Jr., Avner Dacho, Bob Moser, Brad A. Kirsch, Harris Albornoz, Jeffrey Frankway, Joshua Six, Keith Jones, KJ, Carton, Leanne Kogert, Matt Jansen, Miguel Valdez, Milo Wadlin, Niku Mariso, Queen Pounds, Paul Thronson, Rachel Ivanek, Ruth Allen, Steve Heitman, Swerner, and Tracy Envoy. So if you would also like to support the show, you can visit humanistreport.com slash support or go to patreon.com forward slash humanist report. But so long as you watch the show every single week and you share our videos, that is all I could ever ask or hope for. So we have perhaps the longest episode ever. I might need to split it into two parts depending on how long it is because I will be going on vacation next week because I'm getting married and then I will be going on my honeymoon subsequently. So uh, I've got a lot to cover. I need to make sure that there is enough content to keep us posting at least something every single day. Um, So if you're wondering why this episode is just so gigantic, that's why. And we've got a lot. So first, we'll kick off the episode by talking about Trump's cruel decision to end DACA. And we'll also talk about his push for trickle-down economics. Now, also in this episode, we'll talk about Hillary Clinton's attack on Bernie Sanders in her new book, as well as his response, a new pro-Clinton propaganda outlet called Verit, Joanne Reed's rich explaining on The Daily Show, and a new study that shows the benefits of universal basic income. And when it comes to Medicare for All, we'll talk about Bernie Sanders' upcoming single-payer bill and how it's scaring potential 2020 Democratic presidential candidates. Also, Republicans are planning to launch a misinformation campaign to combat single-payer. We'll talk about that, and we'll also compare neoliberal and progressive responses to single-payer, and I'll talk about corporate Democrats that are being primaried exclusively because they won't co-sponsor John Conyard's Medicare for All bill. And finally, in this episode, I'll speak with Ron Placone of The Jimmy Dore Show and Sarah Smith, a candidate running to represent Washington's 9th Congressional District. And that's not all. We've got (laughs) even more stories that will be covered in this gigantic episode. So we can't waste any time. Let's go ahead and just jump right in. Hopefully you guys enjoy what I've prepared for you. Last week on the program, I reported that Donald Trump was contemplating whether or not he would be ending an Obama-era program known as DACA. And early this week, unfortunately, we got confirmation that he would, in fact, 
be phasing out the program. So according to Politico, they report Trump has wrestled for months with whether to do away with the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, known as DACA, but conversations with Attorney General Jeff Sessions, who argued that Congress, rather than the executive branch, is responsible for writing immigration law, helped persuade the president to terminate the program and kick the issue to Congress, the two sources said. In a nod to reservations held by many lawmakers, the White House plans to delay the enforcement of the president's decision for six months, giving Congress a window to act, according to one White House official. Now, for more information on President Donald Trump's decision, we go to White House Press Secretary Sarah Huckabee Sanders. There's a misconception that DACA primarily serves as a shield from deportation. This is misleading. DACA grants work authorization to nearly 800,000 individuals who are not legally authorized to work. DACA recipients whose average age is in their 20s were not an enforcement priority before, and they certainly won't become a priority now. The priorities remain the same, criminals, security threats, and those who repeatedly violate our immigration laws. The main effect of today's announcement is that work permits and other government benefits are being gradually phased out. But rather than leave DACA recipients and the men of women of immigration enforcement in confusing limbo while the DACA program was challenged by states in the same court that struck down another of the previous administration's unlawful immigration orders earlier this year, President Obama is laying out a responsible 24-month phase-out. No per—sorry, President Trump. No permits will be expiring for another six months, and permits will remain active for up to two full years. Now, Huckabee Sanders states that DACA doesn't just act as a shield for deportation, which is technically true, and she states that it also grants beneficiaries the ability to work legally in this country because typically they're not allowed to work legally even if they grew up in this country. But what she's trying to say really in telling you about this and also pointing out the fact that most recipients of DACA are in their 20s is she's trying to make you feel a little bit better about the administration's unnecessarily cruel decision. But that doesn't make matters any better. I don't care if dreamers aren't legally authorized to work in this country because they want to work and they grew up in this country. Therefore, they should be able to work in this country like everyone else. And if they want to work, then that means that they'll be paying taxes. They'll be paying into the system. That's a good thing. We want that. Now, furthermore, I don't care if the average DACA recipient is in their 20s. It's still cruel. They came here when they were children. They didn't make that decision, and this is their home. So the fact that they're in their 20s doesn't make matters any better. These are still young people with dreams and aspirations that you're hurting directly as a result of this decision. Now, they claim that we shouldn't be too worried about this decision because it doesn't necessarily mean that a ton of dreamers would be deported because still, you know, dreamers aren't going to be an enforcement priority for the administration. They're going to be targeting criminals, most likely. But I mean, we can't trust Donald Trump because he lies about literally everything. So I don't trust that Donald Trump won't make dreamers an enforcement priority. And furthermore, you can't be holding the hands of governors and local sheriffs. You just can't do that. It's something that is difficult to control at the federal level. So I don't buy that argument. And regardless of how much they want to sugarcoat this decision, 
it's still wrong. For the first time in their lives, people that grew up in this country, more than half of which, mind you, arrived when they were just six years old, were able to get driver's licenses for the first time. They were able to work legally and contribute to the country that they grew up in and love. DACA grants them just some small benefits that we all don't even think about, that we all take for granted. And giving them this fear that they'll be deported again is just wrong. When they grew up in this country, they were brought here by their parents when they were children, and they have as much of a right to live in this country as I do. They are Americans in my eyes. So what Donald Trump is doing here, it's so arbitrary, it's so cruel, and it honestly makes me sick because I can't even imagine what it would feel like to be worried about being kicked out of the country that's your home. That's the only place that you know. It's something that no human being should ever have to worry about. But yet, Donald Trump is making sure that dreamers are having to worry about whether or not they'll be kicked out of their home. And it's disgusting. So when choosing to end this program, Donald Trump did one of the most unnecessarily cruel things yet. And it shows that he has no empathy. He doesn't care about humanity. He made this decision for political reasons, but yet he wants you to think that he still cares about dreamers. He literally had the audacity to say that he has great love for dreamers. And I'm not kidding about that. Well, I have a great heart for the folks we're talking about, a great love for them. And people think in terms of children, but they're really young adults. Uh, I have a love for these people, and hopefully now Congress will be able to help them and do it properly. And I can tell you, in speaking to members of Congress, they want to be able to do something and do it right. And really, we have no choice. We have to be able to do something. And I think it's going to work out very well. And long term, it's going to be the right solution. So after deciding that dreamers should now live in fear once again, fear that they'll be deported, for driving without a license, fear that they'll be deported for working in this country and trying to contribute to this country, uh, he still has the gall to claim that he cares about them, that he has great love for them, and that really this is the right thing to do because it will compel Congress to act finally. Get the fuck out of here with that bullshit. That is the worst reasoning ever, and really what Donald Trump is doing here is damage control because he knows that this is wrong. It's immoral for someone who self-identifies as a Christian to do something like this. I mean, he spit in the faces of more than 800,000 DACA recipients in making this decision, and this asshole of a so-called president is trying to claim that he has great love for them after making this immoral and cruel decision? Get the fuck out of here. It just makes me so irate hearing him say shit like that, because... We all know it's not true. And think about how unreasonable his statement is. President Obama implemented DACA because Congress refused to act. But now Congress is saying that DACA is unconstitutional when their unwillingness to act was what catalyzed DACA in the first place. DACA wouldn't have been needed if Congress actually did their job and passed the DREAM Act. But now Donald Trump's administration is saying that it's an overreach of the executive branch because DACA is something that should have been done legislatively. So when it comes to accelerating the construction of the Dakota Access Pipeline at the expense of sovereign Native American tribes to benefit one private company, 
Donald Trump doesn't think that signing an executive order to do that is an overreach of power. When it comes to a Muslim ban, something that's clearly unconstitutional that he tried to unilaterally implement via executive order, that's also not an overreach according to Donald Trump. However, when it comes to DACA, something that helps 800,000 people in a small but significant way, well, now that's too much for the executive branch to do. Now it's time for Congress to do their job. Right, we've been here before Trump. Congress doesn't want to do their job, hence why President Obama did one of the few good things in his administration in implementing DACA. So DACA was absolutely necessary because Congress did not want to do anything to protect dreamers. And by framing it this way, Donald Trump is trying to paint himself as the compassionate one. And he's trying to reinforce this idea by calling on Congress to pass immigration reform to make himself look better. But that's not what he cares about. It's nothing more than a means of damage control because DACA was necessary until said immigration reform passed. And Donald Trump knows that Congress most likely isn't going to do anything to act. So in making this decision, he knows he's hurting dreamers and Congress isn't going to change that. Congress isn't going to step up and protect them. You are not the humane one, Donald Trump. You're the bad guy here. You're the bad person who decided to unilaterally make this inhumane cruel and unnecessary decision that protects 800,000 Americans. So if you're one of the tribalistic Trump supporting simpletons that supports this decision, well, unfortunately for you, the facts just aren't on your side because DACA doesn't just benefit dreamers. It also, uh, it helped out the U.S. economy as well because the Cato Institute actually found that repealing DACA could lead to a potential 60 billion loss in tax revenue to the federal government and 280 billion hit to economic growth over 10 years. Now, additionally, getting rid of DACA reduces the number of skilled workers and a lot of industries are facing worker shortages, says Ike Brannon, a visiting fellow at the Cato Institute, a conservative research group. To push this now is really an inappropriate time. So this wasn't a decision based on any logical reason. Donald Trump did this because he doesn't like dreamers. He doesn't think that they belong in this country. He thinks that they should be deported and taken to a country that they didn't know, that they never grew up in. I mean, imagine if you were taken to a foreign country that you didn't grow up in and being left there or having to worry about de being deported to a country that you're not familiar with. It's something that no human being should have to deal with. So Donald Trump, in doing this, I mean, he's already showed his true colors, but if you had any doubts that Donald Trump was a bad person, you can put those doubts aside because in making this decision, Donald Trump showed that he hates humanity. He doesn't care about human beings. He's about throwing red meat to his xenophobic, tribalistic base. And this is disgusting. And look, you can blame Jeff Sessions for trying to convince him. You can blame attorneys general across the country for signing a letter to Donald Trump, encouraging him to end DACA. But ultimately, the buck stopped with Donald Trump and he chose to make a decision that was cruel. And that's unacceptable. Since President Donald Trump was unable to push through his draconian replacement to the Affordable Care Act, he's now setting his sights on his next legislative objective, tax reform. Now, unsurprisingly, what he is pushing is trickle-down economics. Now, for the two of you that don't know, trickle-down economics is 
a disproven economic theory that elites push, wherein they tell us that they should have all the money and wealth because one day that wealth will trickle down to all of us peasants. <laughs> now, I don't know about you guys, but I'm still waiting for the wealth to trickle down to me. Um, <laughs> they keep telling us that it's going to trickle down, but you know, any day now it's going to happen. But that never happened, and I wonder why. It's almost as if they have something to gain personally from trickle-down economics. I mean, this was an idea that was shoved down our throats by Reagan, Bush 1, Clinton to an extent, Bush 2, even President Obama, and now, unsurprisingly, Donald Trump, because surprise, surprise, he has a lot of money and he would benefit from trickle-down economics. So since this economic philosophy has been tried and failed multiple times every time a politician tries to shove it down our throats once again they have to repackage this turd and try to resell it to us as something different when in actuality it's the same goddamn thing that hasn't worked and will never work so here's donald trump trying to sell us all trickle down economics it's vital that we reduce the crushing tax burden on our companies and on our workers we pay the highest tax of any country in the world on businesses, and we can't keep doing that. Last week, I repeated my principles for tax reform. First, we must make the tax code as simple as possible. It's extremely complex, it's not fair, and it's extremely hard to understand. So we want to make it as simple as possible. Second, we must provide tax relief for middle-class workers and families. Third, we must restore a competitive edge, which we've lost. We're doing fine, but we lost the competitive edge. You see what's going on all over the world. So we can have real job growth throughout America. We can't be the jobs magnet of the world if we continue to tax our industries at rates 60% higher than companies in other countries. Can't do it. And finally, we must bring back trillions of dollars that are currently parked overseas. We have, in my opinion, $4 trillion. $4 trillion. Massive amounts of money that can't come back to our country because of our tax code and because of the rates. And this is more than just tax reform. This is tax cutting, to put it in a very simple term. We're going to cut taxes. We're going to reduce taxes for people, for individuals, for middle-income families. We're going to reduce taxes for companies, and those companies are going to produce jobs. Tax reform that follows these principles will create millions of new jobs and ensure that more products are stamped with the very beautiful letters and words made in the USA. It's time to lower our taxes, bring back our wealth, and make America the jobs magnet that it can become. And pretty quickly, it's really, in other words, an expression, I don't know if too many of you have heard it, it's time to make America great again. Has anybody heard that expression? I don't think so. Donald Trump is such a one-trick pony because every time he goes off script and tries to be personable, all he has is the same tired cliche, make America great again. Okay, that means nothing. It's an empty slogan that you used, but the campaign is over. It's done. You're not making America great again. You're making America worse. So stop with that. But 
putting that all aside because I'm almost, you know, getting into rant territory. So what he says here, it's not founded in reality because we don't have the highest tax rate around the world because effectively, once you take into account deductions, business tax loopholes, corporations pay nothing. In fact, many corporations got tax returns. So you're telling us here that we have the highest corporate tax rate in the world when these corporations are scamming the average taxpayer and they're shifting that burden to us. So yes, it's the case that marginally we have the highest tax rate, but effectively that's just that's, that couldn't be further from the truth. And if it were true, then there wouldn't be so many companies that are paying zero dollars in taxes. So anyone who believes this, I, I question their sanity because it's just, it's not true. And it's so frustrating to hear this same talking point espoused by not just Republicans like Donald Trump, but also Democrats as well. And one reason why I'm actually terrified at the prospect of Donald Trump pushing through tax reform, even though legislatively he's had no successes at this point, is because this is the one issue where the so-called resistance might not be resisting him after all. In fact, what he's proposing has a lot of Democrats on board. Heidi Heitkamp, he is buttering her up currently, and she's a corporate Democrat who really wants to cut her corporate donor taxes. So this is really frustrating because this is something that Trump can actually get done. So I just want to make a prediction, and uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll try to anticipate what's going to happen if Donald Trump is successful at passing trickle-down economics at the end of the year, which he wants to do. So um, this will exacerbate income and wealth inequality because inevitably rich people will get richer poor people will get poor and rich people will keep their money in their bank accounts and they won't reinvest it back into the economy and meanwhile the tax burden then gets shifted to the working class and of course that's going to negatively affect the economy now it's not like you need a crystal ball to predict this because i mean we've seen this movie before we know how this story plays out we have spoilers it never ends well for average americans or the u.s economy Again, trickle-down economics, it's something that elites with a vested personal interest in pushing it tell us peasants so that way they can rob us. Uh, I don't accept. I don't accept you oligarchs robbing us any longer. You've had your cake and now it's time for us to redistribute wealth, not from bottom to top, but top to bottom because that's what the economy needs right now. You oligarchs are just sitting on millions and millions and in some cases billions of dollars and you're not reinvesting reinvesting it back into the economy when we're having to pay all the taxes that you greedy pigs aren't paying so i do not buy into donald trump's trickle-down economic theory and you shouldn't too because it doesn't work we don't need to try it one more time because i guarantee you uh <laughs> it's gonna have the same result and they know it's gonna have the same result it doesn't work they know it doesn't work but they don't care it's about the money and they want more of it because you know Having 10 mansions just isn't enough. They need to buy their 11th mansion to make them feel like their life is meaningful while we struggle to even feed ourselves because they don't care. You know, if you have money, you have power in this country. So please, 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 people, don't buy into Trichodon Economics version uh, 8.0. Let's just reject it unequivocally and move on to something different because we've tried this and it doesn't fucking work. So I have tried so hard to avoid talking about Hillary Clinton on this podcast recently. I've been trying to just push for the issues that I care about, like Medicare for All and protecting net neutrality. 
But Hillary Clinton is back, and as you all know, she is releasing a new tell-all book about the 2016 election called What Happened. And I feel obligated to cover this because some of the things that she's saying, they're really harmful. They're wrong, and I feel as though I have to come out and debunk what she's saying. But first of all, we've got to talk about the title of that book, What Happened. The answer is obvious. I'll tell you what happened, Hillary Clinton. You happened, you bonehead, because you thought that, you know, rather than trying to win over your own base, that you'd be able to pull in enough moderate Republicans to send you to the White House. Now, we all warned you that that would be a terrible strategy and you didn't listen to us. And that's just one of the many problems that your campaign suffered. Also, hubris, entitlement. I mean... <laughs> You happened, Hillary Clinton. It's no question. We know what happened. We know why we have Donald Trump. It's because of you. But let's get to one portion of her book where she talks about Bernie Sanders because I think that what she has to say, it's inherently divisive. So she states, because we agreed on so much, Bernie couldn't make an argument against me in this area on policy. So he had to resort to innuendo and imputing my character. Some of his supporters, the so-called Bernie bros, took to harassing my supporters online. It got ugly and more than a little sexist. When I finally challenged Bernie during a debate to name a single time I changed a position or a vote because of a financial contribution, he couldn't come up with anything. Nonetheless, his attacks caused lasting damage making it harder to unify progressives in the general election and paving the way for Trump's crooked Hillary campaign. Wow, she's really going to blame him for that. Also, she states, I don't know if that bothered Bernie or not. He certainly shared my horror at the thought of Donald Trump becoming president, and I appreciated that he campaigned for me in the general election, but he isn't a Democrat. That's not a smear. That's what he says. He didn't get into the race to make sure a Democrat won the White House. He got in to disrupt the Democratic Party. He was right that Democrats needed to strengthen our focus on working families and that there's always a danger of spending too much time courting donors because of our insane campaign finance system. He also engaged a lot of young people in the political process for the first time, which is extremely important, but I think he was fundamentally wrong about the Democratic Party, the party that brought us Social Security under Roosevelt, Medicare and Medicaid under Johnson, peace between Israel and Egypt under Carter, broad-based prosperity and a balanced budget under Clinton, and rescued the auto industry, passed healthcare reform, and imposed tough new rules on Wall Street under Obama. I am proud to be a Democrat, and I wish Bernie were too. Okay, first of all, there's so many contradictions there. So she states that Bernie Sanders impugned her character, and she's claiming that she was the victim, and she didn't run a vicious campaign herself. But she claims that Bernie Sanders impugned her character, and then she goes on in the very next sentence to refer to Bernie Sanders supporters as Bernie bros, and said that they're sexist. But that's not the only contradiction, because she states here that Bernie Sanders didn't get into the race to make sure a Democrat won the White House. He got in to disrupt the Democratic Party. But right after that, she talks about how Bernie Sanders was right about the Democratic Party needing to pay attention to average voters and working class voters. So just in this one page, we already see huge contradictions. But I mean, that's what Hillary Clinton does. Now, second of all, you didn't challenge Bernie at the debate. The moderator did. And the fact that Bernie Sanders wasn't quick enough on his toes or didn't want to talk about one of the many times where money influenced you to change your decision clearly, well, that doesn't mean that money still didn't influence you to change your decision on numerous occasions. You actually were in favor of single payer when you were the first lady, but once you started to take campaign contributions from the health insurance industry, all of a sudden you were against it. And when it comes to the bankruptcy bill, this is something that you stopped Bill Clinton from 
from pushing through once Elizabeth Warren talked to you, but then once you became a senator and started taking money from those same financial institutions that wanted that bill to pass, you then voted for it after taking money from them. So there are there's really there's no shortage of instances where it's very clear that you you change your decision as a result of money. And she also in this passage she talks about party unity and you know Bernie Sanders he prevented party unity from occurring, but that's not true at all. You prevented party unity from occurring because one, you chose Tim Kaine as your VP. So when you saw this populist wing of the party emerging Instead of running to the left, you chose to run to the right when you could have chosen Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren. And let's not forget the infamous time where you had the chance to make your case to Bernie Sanders supporters uh, during a town hall with Rachel Maddow. And this is the first thing you said. I am winning. I am winning. In other words, you have no choice but to vote for me unless you want Donald Trump to be the president. That's that's the pitch that you made to Bernie Sanders supporters. So you can't blame anyone but yourself for losing to Donald Trump, Hillary Clinton. And she talks about how, well, you know, Bernie Sanders isn't a Democrat, and that's not a smear. Right, that's technically not a smear. It's a fact. However, the problem is that you and neoliberal partisan hacks use that as a smear to delegitimize Bernie Sanders. You want to make sure that Bernie's voice isn't heard, so that's why you constantly point out that he's not a Democrat when most people in the country don't even identify as either of the two parties. So that's not a reasonable argument to make, but that's not all because she claims here that Bernie Sanders ran a vicious campaign when she did that herself. But even though she ran a disgusting campaign, well, she had the audacity to play victim in this next passage here. So she's throughout the primaries, every time I wanted to hit back against Bernie's attacks, I was told to restrain myself, noting that his plans didn't add up, that they would inevitably mean raising taxes on middle-class families, or that they were little more than a pipe dream. All of this could be used to reinforce his argument that I wasn't a true progressive. My team kept reminding me that we didn't want to alienate Bernie's supporters. <laughs> yeah, you did that, all right. President Obama urged me to grit my teeth and lay off Bernie as much as I could. I felt like I was in a straight jacket. And this is exactly why we don't like you, Hillary Clinton, because in claiming to be the more practical politician here, you're literally using right-wing talking points against Bernie Sanders' single-payer healthcare plan, a plan that you pushed for, by the way, when you were first lady. Saying that single-payer would lead to a tax increase on the middle class is incredibly disingenuous because what you're not telling those people is that even if their taxes might be increasing, they're going to have more money in their pocket because with a single-payer healthcare system, you no longer have to pay your monthly health insurance premiums. But her, as well as Republicans, don't point this out because they take money from the health insurance industry. So those same companies that help her get elected and help Republicans get elected, they continue to use this talking point when it's incredibly disingenuous. And don't tell me that single-payer is a pipe dream when our neighbors in Canada, just north of the border, have it, and they've had it for a long time. It's only a pipe dream for corrupt neoliberals like yourself who push for the same plan until you were bought off by the health insurance industry. But that's not all, because Hillary Clinton in this book also took the time to effectively complain about how Bernie Sanders decided to challenge her to her left. And the way she described it was just embarrassing. 
to herself. So she states here, Jake Sullivan, my top policy advisor, told me it reminded him of a scene from the 1998 movie There's Something About Mary. A deranged hitchhiker says he's come up with a brilliant plan. Instead of the famous eight-minute abs exercise routine, he's going to market seven-minute abs. It's the same, just quicker. Then the driver, played by Ben Stiller, says, well, why not six-minute abs? That's what it was like in policy debates with Bernie. We would propose a bold infrastructure investment plan or an ambitious new apprenticeship program for young people, and then Bernie would announce basically the same thing but bigger. That's not true. You copied him. On issue after issue, it was like he kept promising four-minute abs or even no-minute abs, magic abs. Someone sent me a Facebook post that summed up the dynamic in which we were caught. Bernie, I think America should get a pony. Hillary, how will you pay for the pony? Where will the pony come from? How will you get Congress to agree to the pony? Bernie, Hillary thinks America doesn't deserve a pony. Bernie supporters, Hillary hates ponies. Hillary, actually I love ponies. Bernie supporters, she changed her position on ponies. Which Hillary? Headline, Hillary refuses to give every American a pony. Debate moderator, Hillary, how do you feel when people say you lie about ponies? Okay, this makes me so angry because what she was really arguing for was incrementalism. And it wasn't that Bernie Sanders was trying to one-up her. It's that she was copying everything that Bernie Sanders was doing, but she wasn't selling it as well because nobody believed that she actually cared, bu cared about the policies Bernie was pushing. Case in point, uh, tuition-free public colleges and universities because what she ended up introducing was a more watered-down version. Now, it was still great, but it was a policy she copied directly from Bernie Sanders. Now, furthermore, single-payer healthcare is not akin to a motherfucking pony. And I know this because other countries have fucking single-payer healthcare, Hillary. This isn't a pipe dream. If other countries can get it done, then why can't we? The reason why you think it's a pipe dream is because everyone else in Congress is bought off just like you. They took money from the health insurance industry and they're paid to say it's a pipe dream. But Bernie Sanders, unlike you, was not bought off by the health insurance industry. He accepted $0 from health insurance companies, which is why he attacked them and you attacked him for pitching single payer. Since when do Democrats attack one another on universal health care? I thought we were trying to realize Harry Truman's dream. Health emergencies can't wait for us to have some theoretical debate about some better idea that will never, ever come to pass. So don't give me this bullshit that it's a pipe dream. You said it would never, ever come to pass, and that's why we didn't vote for you. It's because we know that you wouldn't even fight for it, even if something is unlikely. And, uh, you know, none, none of us are claiming that single pair would be easy to implement, but... To say that you're not even going to fight for it because it's never going to happen, that's bullshit. We know it'll happen because we can look around the world and see that it's happening already. It's happening right now and it's working out really well. So spare me the bullshit. Now, thankfully, Bernie Sanders was asked to respond to her nonsensical claims in this book and uh, he hit back pretty hard. So, according to The Hill, Senator Bernie Sanders on Wednesday brushed off Hillary Clinton's criticism of him in her new book about the 2016 presidential election, saying he's not interested in playing the blame game. My response is that right now it's appropriate to look forward and not backward, Sanders told The Hill. I'm working overtime now to see we overturn Trump's decision on DACA, pass a $15 an hour minimum wage, and next week I'll be offering a Medicare for All single-payer system, he said. 
Sanders said he wants to focus on legislative challenges at hand and not debate who is to blame for President Trump's stunning electoral upset of Clinton, the Democratic nominee, in November. Our job is to go forward, he said. When pressed on these specific allegations, Sanders shot back. I'll let the people decide. And needless to say, the people have already decided. Hillary Clinton has a lower approval rating than Donald Trump right now. So we're not on your side, Hillary Clinton. The American people just aren't into you. And rational people, which is most of us, don't think you're the victim. So the reason why I wanted to talk about this is because she's trying to reinforce this idea that Medicare for All is a pipe dream as we're trying to fight for it which is incredibly harmful to our cause, to the cause of grassroots activists. I mean, to spit in their face and say what they're doing is unachievable, I find that insulting. And furthermore, to continuously relitigate the 2016 election, it's divisive. If you really want unity on the left, if you care, then you can't keep doing this, Hillary. You can't keep blaming other people for your mistakes because it's bad. It's bad for all of us because you make it more likely that Republicans will win in 2018 and 2020. And this is why people don't like you, Hillary. You think that you were owed the White House. You look down upon Bernie Sanders because he dared to challenge you to a throne that was rightfully owed to you. And in doing this, by refusing to allow the country to move on or to allow those wounds to heal that you inflicted in 2016, you're hurting all of us. And I can't help but think that she is attacking Bernie Sanders and blaming Bernie Sanders as a way to evade criticism of the shitty campaign that she ran in 2016 because she wants to run again in 2020. I mean, think about her logic here. She's attacking the most popular politician in the country, who also happens to be our only hope of beating Trump in 2020. And if she thinks that Bernie hurt her in the general and did lasting damage, then surely she believes that she can also hurt Bernie in the 2020 general and inflict lasting damage herself so she can then spring back up on the scene and say, hey, I'm here. If Bernie Sanders is damaged, well, I can run. I'm ready. And it's so frustrating. So Hillary Clinton has got to get it through her thick skull that the American people don't like her and she's a divisive figure. Every time she pops back up in the media and says something stupid and blames someone else for her failed campaign, it's harmful. It's really harmful. It divides the left. So Hillary Clinton is an incredibly selfish individual and she has to go away. She has to go away because what she's doing here is incredibly divisive and harmful and it's just... It's unnecessary. I get that she wants to be truthful, but I don't even believe that she is being truthful here because she's someone who is politically savvy. So I know that she knows that saying, you know, raising taxes on the middle class as a means of paying for Medicare for all is disingenuous because middle class people will still have more money if we pass single payers. So Hillary Clinton is deliberately misleading people who are reading this book. She is deliberately being divisive and i think this is because she wants to carve out a space for her in 2020 because she's not done with politics just yet so it's it's so frustrating and I, i'm so sick of talking about hillary clinton I, but at the same time i feel compelled to do it because i can't let these false facts that she's espousing and this misinformation she's trying to spread go unchecked because it's really really harmful to our cause as progressives so I want to take a moment to talk about Peter Dow. Now, when it comes to Peter Dow, I think that it's safe to say that we all know him as the biggest Hillary Clinton cheerleader slash ass kisser on the internet. And this is someone who has worked with the Democratic Party for quite some time, but 
nobody has really managed to capture his heart in the way that Hillary Clinton has. So in 2008, he worked with her on her campaign that ultimately failed. He also worked with John Kerry. And of course, in 2016, even though he wasn't working with Hillary Clinton, he was an outspoken supporter of her 2016 campaign. And most notably, he was an avowed Bernie Sanders hater, declaring Bernie Sanders and his supporters misogynistic Bernie bros, who he thinks caused the supposed battle-tested candidate to ultimately lose to a reality TV show star. But, you know, the thing about Peter Dow and other neoliberal shills is that they just can't accept that Americans just aren't into Hillary Clinton. We don't like her. Many Americans despise her because we know that she doesn't care about us. She cares about her corporate donors and her Wall Street backers. But Peter Dow, he decided to take it upon himself to create a new media outlet for other like-minded Hillary Clinton worshippers called Verit. Now, Verit is a shittily named, bland-looking attempt at a social media website that collects and displays quotes mostly from corporate Democrats, and in its About section it states, Verit collects and contextualizes noteworthy facts, stats, and quotes for politically engaged citizens. Each Verit is a verified item of information marked with a seven-digit identification code. To authenticate a Verit, enter the code in the search bar and match it to our database. Now, if you're not sure what the significance of the seven-digit verification code is, then you're not alone because none of us really know what it means. I guess that the Verit identification code is one way that you can confirm that this is a Verit-approved fact. But if they're really about facts, then I already saw one glaring mistake because at the top of their page, they have a banner that states that Verit is media for the 65.8 million, but that assumes that everyone who voted for Hillary Clinton was in fact a fan of hers, when in actuality, a large portion of Hillary Clinton voters, they were voting for her strictly to defeat Donald Trump. I mean, I've talked to these people. They don't like Hillary Clinton, but they hated Donald Trump more. So really, that 65.8 million claim is really dubious. But nonetheless, expectedly, Verit, you know, the reception it received wasn't that great. So there's been some really unflattering media articles written about Verit. So in Gizmodo, an article from Tom McKay states, nobody asked for Verit, but here we are. And he explains, the site is run by Peter Dow, an extremely sketchy former Clinton digital advisor with a complicated backstory in web publishing. And in an article for Current Affairs, journalist Nathan Robinson argues that Verrett shows everything wrong with Clintonism and states the Dows themselves are uninteresting except as a case study of the kind of ideological zeal that has made the Democratic Party incapable of introspection and error correction. <laughs> Damn. So people don't really like Verit because, I mean, if you just go to the website, you can tell it's it's a really poorly designed website, to say the least. So nobody really takes Peter Dow seriously. Almost everyone on the far left and the center left look at him as a clown. He has no legitimacy. But the reason why we're even talking about this joke of a website is because, of course... <laughs> I'm excited to sign up for Verit, a media platform for the 65.8 million. Will you join me and sign up too? No! No! Uh, no thank you. Now, even though we are all <laughs> expecting Verit to fail because it will, well, 
in Peter Dow's mind, in the mind of a Hillary Clinton worshiper, Verit is already a huge success because he got exactly what he wanted. He got his queen, or his goddess, however he thinks about Hillary Clinton in his mind, to approve of what he's doing. And for Peter Dow, that's a win in and of itself. That's his only goal, is to seek Hillary Clinton's approval, and he already got it. And of course, after Hillary Clinton endorsed Verit, Dow quickly took to Twitter to boast, saying, hmm, people say Hillary is the past, but within 24 hours of her Verit endorsement, we have more followers than Chapo Trap House. And he also adds... LOL at how quickly they're triggered by what they dish out to Hillary supporters all the time. Now, he continued saying, quote, to expand on my Chapo tweet, people like them and TYT make a living echoing anti-Hillary themes that marginalize women and people of color. Harms us all. Okay, first of all, um... Chapo Trap House is one of the best podcasts that you will find on the internet, and Verit will never ever be even in the same league as Chapel Trap House. So keep dreaming. And the same is true for TYT. They are the largest online progressive news network. And Verit is never ever going to even be a competitor to TYT because Verit is a piece of garbage website. Now, let's think about what he's saying here. He's saying that in criticizing Hillary Clinton, we're actually harming women and people of color. When Hillary Clinton is not marginalized. And when we critique Hillary Clinton, we're not marginalizing women and people of color. We're actually criticizing Hillary Clinton because she marginalized people of color and women. She used slave labor from mostly black prisoners when Bill Clinton was the governor of Arkansas. She referred to black youth as super predators when she was pushing a bill that facilitated even more mass incarceration. And when someone asked her to apologize for using the derogatory term super predator, she kicked that individual out. She also kicked out Black Lives Matter when they were calling on her to address their concerns. So Hillary Clinton is not a victim. Hillary Clinton is the embodiment of privilege, Peter. She's an oligarch. She doesn't need you defending her because she has all the wealth, all the privilege in the world. But nonetheless, Peter's got some choice words for people like me who dare to criticize his shitty attempt at a social media website because he states, what so many critics are missing about Verit is that it's not for them. The people it centers slash serves are exceptionally happy about it. And he even criticized the media for attacking Verit, saying, to publications who feel the best use of their time is to attack Verit, we appreciate the publicity. You're validating our premise. Thanks. And he adds, apparently there are no pressing issues to cover, so a bunch of publications have decided to attack Verit for posting verified facts slash stats. Oh, okay, so is that so? So they're attacking Verit for posting verified facts and stats. Well, let's look at some of these facts that Verit is posting. Quote, Hillary Democrats are the heart and conscience of America. (laughs) (laughs) So the implication here is that the individual that voted for the Iraq War and the Patriot Act and has pushed for really harmful policies... Well, she's actually the person with a really good heart, along with her supporters. They have the good heart. (laughs) These people are so embarrassing. I feel embarrassed for them, but they have no shame. Now, let's look at another example of a, quote, Verit fact. Sanders and the mainstream media helped put Trump in the White House. Now, I'm sure that Peter Dow is basing this Verit-approved fact off of Bernie Sanders' Pied Piper strategy, where he intentionally elevated Donald Trump and tried to legitimize Donald Trump 
and push for the media to cover Donald Trump so that way he would have an easier time winning the general election. That's probably what Peter Dow is referring to, except, oh wait, that wasn't Bernie Sanders' strategy. That was Hillary Clinton's strategy. She's the one who literally pushed for Donald Trump to be elevated, to be legitimized. It was Bill Clinton who recommended that Donald Trump should run. He told Donald Trump, you should run. And you're going to blame Bernie Sanders and the mainstream media for Donald Trump? Really? That's a very fact? You are so dumb. You are really dumb. For real. And when it comes to the media supposedly giving us Donald Trump, well, I mean, you could say that that's partially true because they covered him nonstop. But to say that the media was unkind to Hillary Clinton is just laughable. There was a media blackout when it came to Bernie Sanders' campaign. And whenever they did cover Bernie Sanders, it was mostly negative coverage. And journalists overwhelmingly donated to and favored Hillary Clinton in comparison with Donald Trump. And there were even a number of reports that showed just how cozy Hillary Clinton's relationship was with members of the media media and this doesn't even include what we learned through WikiLeaks about how journalists would send articles to Clinton's campaign before they'd publish it in order to get her approval. So don't you dare try to contend that the media cost Hillary Clinton the election when you were one of the people that argued that we have to vote for Hillary Clinton during the primaries because she is the battle-tested candidate. You told us that she was the strong candidate. You, you told us that she was the sure bet to beat Donald Trump. But now that she lost to the reality TV show star buffoon, now you're changing your story. Well, you can't have it both ways, Peter Dow. And look, here's what you can do, Peter. If you really do care about women and marginalized minorities like you claim to, then you could have taken all of your money and started a nonprofit to benefit people of color and gay people and LGBT youth. But instead, you chose to create a website that all Hillary Clinton worshipers could go to to just read facts that reinforce their bias. I don't think you really do care about people of color and women as much as you claim to, because if so, then you would have gotten on board with Bernie Sanders, whose policies disproportionately benefit women and people of color. So what Peter Dow needs to do is he needs to take the energy that he has and channel that into actually doing something that will help marginalized groups instead of punching left constantly and attacking Bernie Sanders and his supporters. But Peter Dow doesn't care. Peter Dow has his head so far up Hillary Clinton's ass that he doesn't know what's going on in the real world. He has so much money that he can't possibly empathize with us plebeians and Think about why we support Bernie Sanders. It's not because we're misogynistic Bernie bros. It's not because we're racist. We support Bernie Sanders because we know that he's looking out for us. We don't support Hillary Clinton because she has a history of not looking out for us. In fact, it's not just that she doesn't care about us, but her policies actually harmed our communities. So Peter Dow is a joke. Verit is a joke. And um, I'm really excited to watch it fail because it's not going anywhere. Doesn't matter if Hillary Clinton endorsed it. Verit is a joke. It's already a joke. It's already a meme on the internet. So I'm sorry, Peter Dow. Um, unfortunately for you, Americans don't like Hillary Clinton. She has a lower approval rating than Donald Trump. So that's a hard pill that you're going to have to swallow. MSNBC's Joanne Reed recently appeared on The Daily Show with Trevor Noah, which is terrible now, by the way, and Trevor Noah asked her why it's the case that even under a highly unpopular president like Donald Trump, the Democratic Party still isn't able to thrive. And her answer, predictably, was atrocious. Um, she 
as she typically does, gave the Democratic Party the worst possible advice. And she also took the time to rich-splain to average voters what it is that they really want. Let's pivot and talk about the Democrats then. Because you would think in any other time, in any other place, going up against Donald Trump would mean you are assured. Right? You, yeah. You're going to win this thing. You're going to take it all. And yet it feels like the Democrats themselves are experiencing rifts. They're experiencing yeah. a lack of focus. It doesn't seem like there is a concrete message that, that's going to move them forward. Well, this is the Democrats. <laughs> I mean, this is kind of who they are. They're very disorganized. The Democrats are not, they're not good at the sort of go for the jugular, hard-nosed politics they used to be. Right. Uh, back when the Democrats were more of sort of an ethnic party. They were kind of an ethnic white, ethnic black, ethnic party generally. Now they're a party that's looking for consensus, and they look for it, you know, so desperately that they never really come up with a coherent frame for themselves. What do you, what do you mean when you say that? Because Democrats, although they... They understand, I think, deep down that they're the party of black and brown people, of, of gay people, of, of marginalized people. Right. They still long to be the party of the sort of Pabst Blue Ribbon voter, the kind of Coors Light drinking voter. The could could, Coors could, they, could voter. they not be both, though? Why, why could they not be both? Because those voters are Republicans. They do you, just do are. you think definitively across the board? Yeah, I think that that vote has migrated from being a Democratic Party vote to a Republican Party vote, and it has done for the last 40 years. Right. Democrats just can't accept it. So they don't understand that the voters they long to have back, those voters who, the sort of Archie Bunker voter that was a Democrat in the uh-huh. 70s, is now a Republican. And so they can long for them all they want. They're not going to convince them by saying, we'll give you free college. That's not why they're voting. Right. They're voting. And the way I kind of put it is this way. People say, well, why do people vote against their economic interests? Why don't they vote values? Democrats vote against their economic interests. If you live in New York and you make, you know, New York salary, you're voting against your economic interests whenever you vote for Democrats. They right. raise your taxes. You vote your values. So why do you think that people on the other side don't do the same? They're not voting economics. They're voting because the, the Republican Party represents their values. They don't care about the economics. So Democrats keep trying to use economic lures to pull them back in, but that's not why they're voting that way. Spoken like a truly out-of-touch rich person that gets paid to espouse pro-corporate talking points. Now, she states here, Democrats understand deep down that they're the party of black and brown people, of gay people, of marginalized people. They still long to be the party of the Pabst Blue Ribbon voter, the kind of Coors Light drinking voter. And when Trevor Noah asked her if they could be both, she said, well, no, because those voters are Republicans. They just are. No, they're not. Now, first of all, I think it's condescending to refer to working class voters as Pabst Blue Ribbon voters, because, I mean, the underlying implication here is that, you know, as a rich person, well, they drink poor people beer. Ugh, I don't, I don't like what they drink. They're Pabst Blue Ribbon voters. They're Republicans. I hate them. Ugh, gross. I mean, that's really the implication. So I found that condescending. Maybe I'm reading too much into this, but really, I think Joanne Reed has got on my last nerve, so maybe I... Maybe I'm not the right person to judge, but to me, that really came off as condescending. And also, I mean, it's it's a false stereotype. I, I don't know what you mean by that. And second of all, Democrats only do a half-assed job at standing up for marginalized groups. And even if they did do a good job, that still wouldn't be enough. I mean, what Joanne Reed keeps trying to do is detach social justice and economic issues from one another. But those are inextricably linked. You can't separate those two issues. They go hand in hand. But the reason why Joy Reid and other corporate Democrats do this is a way of defending the Democratic Party and shielding them from criticism because when you just 
pay lip service to social justice issues, that doesn't necessarily offend the Democratic Party's donors, but if they really wanted to take a stand and truly fight against economic injustice and really represent the issues that disproportionately impact marginalized minorities, then that would actually piss off their donors, so they can't do that. So what Joanne Reed is doing here is trying to shield the party from criticism while perpetuating the dubious claim that they stand up for the rights of marginalized minorities, when that's not really true. And furthermore, let's say hypothetically speaking that as a gay person you know from this marginalized community that the democratic party fights for social justice issues with regard to my community well that's still not enough uh i'm a full package i'm not just gay person i don't just fall under that label and category i also have other interests i would like to not be crippled by student loan debt i would like to have health care if for whatever reason i lose my insurance i mean to say that they only represent social issues, that's just, I don't see how that can be sufficient. I mean, only to someone who's rich and out of touch would that suffice. But to us ordinary Americans who Joy Reid is detached from and knows nothing about, I mean, would something like that actually pass as a real argument? But that that's not the way that politics works. Voters, we, we care about a number of issues, not just social issues. And that goes for marginalized minorities too. So to oversimplify and explain to average voters what we want, I find insulting. Now, she also states here that voters aren't coming back who left and argues that the Democratic Party can long for them all they want, but they're not going to convince them by saying, we'll give you free college. That's not why they're voting. And finally, she states that they're voting because the Republican Party represents their values. They don't care about the economics. Democrats keep trying to use economic lures to pull them back in, but that's not why they're voting that way. So this is a perfect example of rich-splaining. She's saying, I know what these average voters want. They don't care about economic issues, even though they do care about economic issues, because, you know, they vote Republican because the Republican Party represents their values. No, this is really what it's about. If you look at public opinion polls, by and large, progressive issues resonate with the American people. But Joy Reid doesn't want to tell you that because progressive issues are something the Democratic Party can't fight for because that would be offensive to their donors. Again, so instead she tries to convince us that we don't really care about economic issues. When that's bullshit, she has no idea what we care about because she's a millionaire. And she's basically saying that you can't go after white working class voters and become the party of Bernie Sanders because those voters left for the Republican Party and they're not coming back. And here's what she's doing. Really, she's perpetuating this false claim that Bernie Sanders' message only resonates with white working class voters. But that's not true. And problems that harm white working class voters, well, they harm black and Latino working class voters even more. So we all care about them, Joy. Bernie Sanders' message is applicable to working class voters of all colors, but especially working class voters of color, because when you break down Bernie Sanders' approval ratings demographically, he has the highest approval rating among African Americans and Hispanics at 73 and 68% respectively, Joy, and his approval rating with women is actually three points higher than it is with men. So, I hate to break it to you, Joy, but Bernie Sanders has a message that resonates with everyone. Hence why he is still the most popular politician in the country. So, in saying that the Democratic Party should abandon an economic message in favor of identity politics, 
I mean, that's the worst possible advice she could give them. It's almost as if she's a Republican operative who is giving them bad advice and reinforcing all of their bad decisions because she wants them to lose. Now, I'm not suggesting that. I'm not being conspiratorial. I don't think that Joanne Reed actually works for Republicans. But the thing about Joanne Reed is that she's just a really bad friend to the Democratic Party. She's like that friend you have who, when you're trying to stop drinking, she encourages you to keep drinking, even if it's very clear that you're an alcoholic. I mean, she doesn't want to tell you what you need to do to actually improve your life. And that's not good. I mean, Joy Reid, all she does is rich plain and she's trying to make all of us see the world the way that she sees it when that's not that's not the way that we see the world. Joy, you're a millionaire. We're not millionaires. We're plebeians. We're peasants, as you probably refer to us, or we're papsed blue ribbon voters. So Joy Reid has no idea what she's talking about. Um, and to have people like Trevor Noah and other mainstream news networks giving her a platform as she continues to espouse false information, it's just, it's really harmful. We've got another report coming out from The Hill about how Bernie Sanders' upcoming Medicare for All bill is putting some Democrats in a really difficult position because they know that if Bernie Sanders introduces this bill and they don't co-sponsor it, then they might be primaried and they might actually lose their job. So they don't like that Bernie Sanders is going to be introducing this bill because it forces them to show their cards. Now, that same concern, however, is not just being echoed by Senate Democrats because Democrats that might actually be running for president in 2020 are now starting to worry that Bernie Sanders' Medicare for All bill might hurt their chances in the Democratic primaries come 2019 and 2020. So according to Peter Sullivan and Mike Lillis of The Hill, they explain Senator Bernie Sanders' Medicare for All plan has become a key test for Democrats with 2020 presidential ambitions. The issue poses a dilemma for both Democratic leaders and presidential hopefuls who are walking a fine line between appeasing their liberal supporters without alienating the more conservative-leaning voters they'll need to win back power in the House, the Senate, and the White House. Spokesmen for several Democrats with possible presidential ambitions, including Senator Amy Klobuchar, New York Governor Andrew Cuomo, and Virginia Governor Terry McAuliffe, did not respond to a request for comment on their stance on single-payer. Senators Chris Murphy, Kirsten Gillibrand, and Sherrod Brown, all potential White House contenders who have voiced support for single-payer in the past, haven't said if they'll endorse Sanders' bill. Their offices were also silent this week. A spokeswoman for Senator Cory Booker, another possible candidate, referred to Booker's interview with Vox in April. He said then that I believe, ultimately, in ideas like single-payer or Medicare for all, while adding that I don't know how we get it done in this environment. They will face no lack of pressure to try, as liberal groups are already pushing for candidates to get on board. Okay, so let me tell you what this is about. This is not about Democrats being wary about alienating centrist voters, because even a plurality of Republicans support Medicare for All. What this is about is them not wanting to get on board with Medicare for All because their donors won't let them get on board with Medicare for All. In fact, of the six people named here who might be running for president in 2020 who were silent, Amy Klobuchar took roughly $250 million from health industry PACs, Sherrod Brown took over $2 million from health industry PACs, Kirsten Gillibrand took more than 720000 Chris Murphy took more than 800000 
300,000. Cory Booker took over 300,000, not to mention the nearly 400,000 he took from the pharmaceutical industry. And most of these people have already sold out in 2018. They've already accepted thousands upon thousands of dollars from the health insurance industry. So the reason why they're silent is because their donors paid them to be silent. And let me just say this to Kirsten Gillibrand, someone who supports single pair and Sherrod Brown, your silence is deafening. Progressives are paying attention to the corporate Democrats who are silent with regard to Bernie Sanders' Medicare for All bill. But if you even want to have a chance in 2020, then you have to co-sponsor this bill. That is non-negotiable. And even if I may not trust Kamala Harris, she was at least smart enough to see the writing on the wall. And since, well, she doesn't really have that much donors in the health insurance industry, she thought that this was a good way to win over progressives, and she was right. But, of course, it will take more than that. However, Kamala Harris is at least smart enough to realize that you're not going to even win over any progressives if you don't at least get on board with Medicare for All. It's a non-starter, and this is an issue that progressives aren't willing to negotiate on. This is absolutely a litmus test. Either you will support Medicare for all or you will not get our votes. And that's not to say that I'm a one-issue voter because I do care about other issues as well. But I'm telling you that I'm not alone when I say that Medicare for all really is a non-starter. If you don't support it, I don't care what you have to say about any other policy issues because if you're willing to sell out on Medicare for all, something that is a moral issue, then you're going to sell us out on every other issue. So if you don't even support Medicare for all, I don't I don't support you. I don't even consider supporting you. So if you want any progressives to get on board with your 2020 campaign, you're going to have to win us over by first coming out strongly in favor of Medicare for All and co-sponsoring Bernie Sanders' Medicare for All bill. Otherwise, don't even try because you won't be successful in 2020, at least with progressives. So as you all know, progressives across the country are fighting to make Medicare for All the law of the land. Now, to me, the way that I've always conceptualized this fight is as one that's twofold. So first of all, in phase one, we've got to make sure that we force the Democratic Party to get on board with Medicare for all. And then second of all, we've got to fight off right-wing attacks that will inevitably come after we get the Democratic Party to come on board with Medicare for all. Now, as Medicare for all and the idea of single payer gains momentum and as public support increases for Medicare for all, it's already time for us to move into phase two, because up until this point, we've been focused on getting the Democratic Party on board. But now Republicans know that the writing for single payer is on the wall and they see that, you know, as it gains momentum, it threatens the status quo and their health insurance donors don't want them to let this come to pass. So now we're going to have to move into phase two because Republicans are already gearing up to attack single payer by launching a misinformation campaign against it. So according to Vox, top Republican strategists say they will accuse Democratic candidates in the 2018 midterms of wanting to eliminate the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs, which provides health insurance for 9 million veterans. Their proof for this explosive charge? Democrats' increasing embrace of single payer health care, which aims to create one government insurer for virtually all Americans. I can't wait to run ads against Democrats saying they want to 
abolish the VA, Medicare Part D, and want complete government control of health care. Matt Gorman, communications director at the National Republican Congressional Committee, told Fox News earlier this week. He was referring to single-payer health care. NRCC Press Secretary Jesse Hunt confirmed in an interview Thursday. Democrats have no plans to either abolish the VA or threaten the health insurance of veterans. The single-payer bills Democrats have written in Congress contain special exemptions that would ensure the new national single-payer system doesn't affect the VA, even while extending insurance to the 28 million Americans who currently lack it. Representative John Conyers' single-payer bill which more than 60% of House Democrats have now co-sponsored, includes a provision explicitly stating that the VA and veterans' benefits will remain independent of the new single-payer system, at least in the first decade. At the end of those 10 years, Congress will then reevaluate whether such programs shall remain independent or be integrated into the Medicare for All program, the bill states. In the Senate, Sanders is expected to release a new version of his single-payer bill in early September, but the 2013 version of his single-payer proposal, the only existing single-payer bill in the Senate says nothing in this act shall affect the eligibility of veterans for the medical benefits and services provided through the VA. An aide to Sanders confirmed that the provision exempting the VA from the new single-payer insurer will remain in the upcoming bill. But Republicans are prepared to accuse single-payer Democrats of both advancing an unaffordable new entitlement program and trying to cripple existing government health insurance programs. Any conversation with voters about what direction we're going with health care needs to include what the Democrats would do if they had their druthers, Hunt said. They'd move the country further to the left with the single-payer European health care system, which would include massive tax increases and a host of issues, including abolishing the VA. Democrats have an endgame, which is to turn the health care system into single-payer, and we're going to make sure voters know that, Hunt said. The idea that government is making the bulk of the decisions when it comes to health care, we want voters to know that Democrats support that. So this isn't surprising. In fact, these disingenuous, outright false attacks were expected by progressives. And even though it's the case that there's been this tremendous cultural shift towards support for single payer, I do think that these attacks can and will inevitably resonate with certain people. Because even if the Republican Party is loathsome and most people know that, they're still somehow able to convince millions of voters every election that policies that favor the rich and somehow harm the middle class and the poor are in their interest. So, I mean, they're good at marketing, even though they are terrible. But I will say that by traditional Republican standards, a party that is usually able to effectively attack the Democratic Party, this is a really weak argument because if you think about it, what they're claiming here is that um, Democrats want to abolish the VA health system that we currently have. That's just factually incorrect. John Conyers' bill and Bernie Sanders' bill will not include these provisions, so obviously you could just say, no, that's not the case, but think about how bad their argument is in defending the VA and Medicare Part D from single-payer. They're tacitly admitting that government-run healthcare is a good thing, which is not a very persuasive argument to make if you're trying to scare voters into running away from the big bad, you know, uh, government boogeyman and really they've already lost the rebranding effort because the bill is called medicare for all so you can't convince reasonable self-interested voters that they'll be losing medicare under a bill called the expanded and improved medicare for all act you just can't do it and also every time republicans bring up the big government boogeyman well here's what progressives will do 
Anytime a Republican tries to come up with this disingenuous talking point, well, it's easy. We'll just show the American people who's funding them, who's bankrolling their campaigns, and I think the American people will then be able to determine pretty easily that Republicans aren't looking out for their interests. They're looking out for the interests of their donors. And I just want to go back to the quote from the Republican who was pretty arrogant. He states, I can't wait to run ads against Democrats saying they want to abolish the VA, Medicare Part D, and want to complete and want complete government control of health care. Now, I can see how you would be excited because this whole government takeover of healthcare boogeyman is something that is a tried and true tactic that Republicans have used for decades now to successfully wait off any attempts at single payer. But I've got really bad news for this individual here. Um, progressives don't fuck around. You see, because Democrats, you know, these mealy-mouthed, mamby-pamby Democrats... They like to try to play safe and take the high road, but progressives will fight dirty if you want to fight dirty because we don't fuck around. So if you want to smear a single pair, if you want to try to lie about single pair, then bring it the fuck on because we don't play nice. We're not going to be nice to you and we will fight you tooth and nail because progressives know that in order to push for policies like Medicare for All, we've got to fight hard. We can't just, you know, roll over and die the minute we face even the most minimal level of Republicans scrutiny no progressives mean business we don't fuck around and we will expose your corruption so bring it on if you really think that your argument will resonate with the american voter i've got bad news for you you've already lost you've lost the rebranding effort that you tried to do and you've lost the debate because even your own party a plurality of republicans now support medicare for all so they're not on your side they're on our side because times are changing People know that Canadians and British people, they all have single-payer system and they love their single-payer system. In fact, um, if you tried to take away single-payer from Canadians, they would probably riot because they love it. Even conservatives love single-payer system in Australia and Canada because this is something that works. It works really well. So if you think that your lies will stop the effort that thousands of grassroots activists have been fighting for across the country... You're in for a very rude awakening. So if you want to attack single-payer Republicans, bring it the fuck on because progressives are not like the Democrats you're used to. We actually know how to fight and you're not going to get this bullshit past us. And there are more of us than there is of you. And we will win this battle. We will get single-payer. In fact, there's a lot of Republicans even that are conceding on this point that single-payer is inevitable. So I'm glad that you are excited about this fight. We're excited too. Bring it on because you're not going to win this fight. Amy Valela is a progressive running to represent Nevada's 4th Congressional District, and she is challenging the corrupt Ruben Kiwin primarily because he refuses to support Medicare for All. Now, this is an issue that's non-negotiable to Amy because she has first-hand experience as to how no Medicare for All can hurt people because even though the Affordable Care Act was a step in the right direction, well, it still didn't cover Amy's daughter, Shalin. And being unable to prove that she had medical insurance, Shalin died because she was denied basic medical screenings. Now, Amy Valela went to a town hall with Ruben Kiwin to tell her story to Ruben, and that didn't move him to co-sponsor Medicare for All. He told her no, effectively. And we talked about him on the show and made thousands of calls collectively to his office, 
and that didn't move him. So Amy decided that since Rubin wasn't going to represent the people of Nevada's 4th Congressional District, who literally begged him to co-sponsor Jean Conyers' Medicare for All bill, Help us, please. She would primary him and co-sponsor it herself because she wanted to make sure that what happened to her daughter never happens to anyone else in this country ever again. But Amy isn't just running on Medicare for All alone, even though that's the primary reason why she chose to primary Rubin. Amy is running on an all-encompassing progressive platform that will appeal to everyone who supported Bernie Sanders. Um, and I think it's even better than Bernie Sanders' platform. So Amy is a phenomenal candidate, but the fight ahead is going to be really tough for her in Nevada's 4th Congressional District, and I'll tell you why. So as you all know, Harry Reid retired from Congress last year, but even though he's no longer in power, he still has a lot of sway when it comes to Nevadan politics. And basically, if you want to run in Nevada and actually be successful, then you have to kiss Harry Reid's ring. Otherwise, you'll most likely get steamrolled by the Harry Reid machine. So you know how there's the Clinton machine in Washington, D.C. that basically acts as the gatekeeper to a lot of um, congressional seats. Well, in Nevada, Harry Reid has his own machine in which he basically is able to dictate who's able to run and who gets elected to Congress. And for those of you who know anything about Reuben Kewin, he is Harry Reid's golden boy. Harry Reid loves Reuben Kewin. And the reason why Reuben had no problem ignoring his constituents is because he has the backing of Harry Reid in Nevada. So he feels invincible. He feels protected because very few people have been able to take on Harry Reid's machine and actually win. But one person in Nevada did take on Harry Reid's machine, and she won. And her name is Dina Titus. And an article in the Las Vegas Sun summarizes the situation perfectly. The almost universally acknowledged master of Nevada politics, Reid, and his lieutenants anoint candidates, eliminate contested primaries, and ultimately win elections. Few dare cross him. So when Dina Titus, a former state senator and one-term congresswoman, decided against Reid's wishes to run for the safest Democratic congressional seat in Nevada, some observers were waiting for Titus to be pushed out. Instead, it was Reid's favorite candidate, State Senator Reuben Kewin, who last week dropped his bid for the 1st District seat, where Democrats have a steep voter registration advantage. Titus not only stood up to the Senate Majority Leader and lived to tell about it, but she also appears to have claim to a congressional seat for as long as she wants it. So this story really lays it out perfectly here. Understand what Harry Reid tried to do. He tried to shove Reuben Kewin down the throats of voters in Nevada's first congressional district. And when he was unsuccessful at that, to his surprise, he then tried again in a different district, District 4. And that time he was actually successful. So Dina Titus beat Reuben Kewin and she defeated the Harry Reid machine in her congressional race. So if anyone can empathize with Amy Valela, it's Dina Titus. She took on the Harry Reid machine before and she challenged Reuben Kewin and she won. Now here's the best part about Dina Titus. She's someone who was formerly considered a more centrist and moderate Democrat, but she's become more progressive over the years. She came out in favor of marijuana legalization. And here's what I find just awesome. So back when Amy Valela was just an activist, I mean, she's still an activist, but when she was primarily an activist for Medicare for All, 
she met with Dina and she heard Amy Valela's story. And unlike Ruben Kiwan, Dina Titus thought, okay, I, your story makes sense. Now I'm going to support Medicare for All. And guess what happened? Dina Titus co-sponsored HR 676. So she actually has shown that she's willing to listen to her constituents and change her mind when it comes to certain policies. So she's a progressive ally now, and she knows Amy Valela personally. And one way that we can really help out Amy Valela's campaign is if we try to encourage Dina Titus to endorse Amy Valela, because this would send shockwaves through Washington, D.C., because for a sitting member of Congress to endorse the primary challenger of an incumbent, that would be huge. And again, Amy Valela is running against Ruben Kiwin. Dina Titus ran against Ruben Kiwin, and she knows just how shady Ruben Kiwin and the Harry Reid machine is. So if we all call Dina Titus and politely ask her to endorse Amy Valela, then uh, according to what some activists in Nevada are saying, she'll probably be inclined to endorse Amy Valela, which would help Amy in so many ways. So you can call Dina Titus at 702-220-9823. And I'm calling her Nevada office because, you know, this concerns Nevadan politics especially. Hi, my name is Mike Figueredo, and I wanted to deliver a message to uh, Representative Dina Titus. Absolutely. So, first of all, I really wanted to just uh, thank her for co-sponsoring H.R. 676, which is the Medicare for All bill. Um, this is something that I've been fighting for, and her support honestly means so much to me. So, that's part one of the message. Um and part two of the message is, I really would love for Dina Titus to endorse Amy Valela, who's currently running against Ruben Kewen in the 4th District of Nevada, because Dina Titus is actually someone who ran against Ruben Kewen and the Harry Reid machine before and won, and Amy Valela is now kind of taking on that same challenge. And if Dina Titus, you know, someone who's a sitting member of Congress would endorse Amy, that would really, really help out our campaign and just give a huge boost to our effort to push for Medicare for all. I absolutely understand that. I will absolutely make sure that the Congresswoman gets uh, your comments. And uh, could I also get you to spell out your last name for me? Yeah, absolutely. It's Figueredo. So it's F as in Foxtrot. Mm -hmm. I-G- U-E-R-E-D-O. E-D-O. Great. And uh, could I also get your zip code? Yes, my zip code is 97203. I'm actually in Portland, but I have a lot of people who watch a podcast that I run who live in Nevada that are really, really big fans of Amy, as well as Dina Titus. In fact, we learned about Dina through Amy Valela because uh, Amy met with her before and convinced her to support Medicare for All. Um, so, I mean, I, I just love everything that I'm seeing about Dina, and I really feel like she could be a great ally to Amy. Absolutely. Uh, we definitely understand that. We do thank you for taking time out to uh, address uh, the Congresswoman and give her uh, your comments. Um, and we'll definitely make sure this reaches uh, the Congresswoman. Excellent. Thank you so much, and you have a great day. You too. Thank you so 
much. Uh, keep it weird up in Portland. <laughs> we absolutely will. <laughs> Take care. Alrighty. Goodbye. B- bye-bye. Yeah, so you don't have to say the exact thing that I'm saying, but I mean, if you just politely ask her to endorse Medicare for All, and I think thank, or, I mean, endorse Amy, and I think thanking her for endorsing Medicare for All, that will go a long way. So, um, if, if we can get Dina Titus to endorse Amy, I know she's she's probably considering it, but if we can really push her in the right direction, I can't even imagine what this would do for Amy's campaign. I mean, we're talking about national headlines. And Amy, I mean, out of all the campaigns, out of all the progressive campaigns that I see, uh, you know, running in 2018, she's one that just really gives me hope. So I, I just feel so emotionally invested in her campaign. And I know a lot of you do too, because that's what you're telling me. So look, Let's give it a try. Please, please, please politely ask her to uh, endorse Amy Valela and let's see, let's see if that happens. Over the last year, I've been reporting on grassroots activism at town halls across the country with regard to Medicare for All. So I've been talking about how activists will show up to Democratic town halls and ask them to co-sponsor Medicare for All. And if they don't, then we'll call them and put pressure on them and hopefully they will uh, co-sponsor it. Now, after months of activism and putting pressure on politicians, H.R. 676, which is John Conyers' Medicare for All bill, now has 117 co-sponsors and Medicare for All has more support than ever before. And this is the direct result of grassroots activists fighting for Medicare for All and putting pressure on politicians to support Medicare for All. Now, I do have some updates regarding the politicians that were covered. So, as you all know, I talked about Brad Sherman and his town hall that Lauren Steiner showed up to, and she asked Brad Sherman why he has not co-sponsored John Conyers' Medicare for All bill, H.R. 676. And this was his response. Right now, I've got the entire Republican caucus chanting repeal and replace Obamacare. I am not anxious to be quoted as, and, say, and, and every point at me and say he wants to repeal and replace Obamacare. I want to build, I, want, I will have to check some with, with some of my colleagues on this. I think the next step is a public option. That, that is the next step. And that's where we should have gone in 2008. Yeah, that answer wasn't encouraging. I didn't like it. I know that people in the town hall then that attended it didn't like that answer. And I know Lauren Steiner didn't like that answer. And a lot of my viewers didn't like it too because we then put pressure on Brad Sherman to change his mind. Hello, Brad Sherman. My name is Mike Figueredo. And I noticed that on Bill HR 676, you are one of the few Democrats that has not co-sponsored this bill. Now, as you know, H.R. 676 would make single-payer health care a reality in America. So I'm wondering if the $21,000 that you took from health industry super PACs had any influence on your decision. Take a stand, have a spine, and co-sponsor H.R. 676. Thank you. So I called him. You guys called him, grassroots activists have been putting pressure on him, and now I am happy to report that as of August 18th, Brad Sherman became the 117th co-sponsor of HR 676. You did this. If you called Brad Sherman, if you tweeted to Brad Sherman, if you sent him an email, if you showed up to a town hall with Brad Sherman, you have yourself to thank. 
And this proves that putting pressure on politicians does work. Now, does it always work? No, it doesn't, because I have another update for you regarding Denny Heck. Now, Denny Heck is someone who represents the 10th Congressional District of Washington State, and he was asked why he hasn't co-sponsored H.R. 676, and this was his pathetic, sorry excuse for a response. I've declined to become a co-sponsor of uh, H.R. 6776, and I, and I do so because I frankly don't think it's fully formed. Let me tell you what I mean by that. Uh, well, you shake your head, give me a chance. Okay? It, you know, it's okay that we disagree. I'm okay with that. Needless to say, that answer didn't sit very well with his constituents, and I certainly didn't like his answer, so... Um, same thing, you know, like we did with Brad Sherman. We gave Denny Heck a call and let him know that he needs to get on board with Medicare for All. I've called Denny Heck. Thousands of people called Denny Heck. His constituents have called De Denny Heck repeatedly about HR 676, and we want him to co-sponsor HR 676, and we've been calling him for months, and he is refusing to acknowledge that we even exist or care about this issue. And because of this, we will be trying to primary him in 2018 because his reluctance to support this, we know, is contingent on the fact that he has taken thousands of dollars from the health insurance industry, and that's not acceptable. So if he doesn't co-sponsor HR 676, we will be doing everything we can to make sure that he loses his seat. Thank you. Now, after putting pressure on Denny Heck to co-sponsor HR 676 for months, he still has refused to get on board with the idea of single-payer in the deep blue state of Washington. So before I tell you what we're going to do next, I want to tell you about someone who did the same thing named Ruben Kiwin. You all know Ruben Kiwin is someone who refused to listen to his constituents after they literally begged him to support John Conyers' Medicare for All bill. And months later, the constituent that asked Ruben Kiwin to support Medicare for All announced that she would be primarying him so that way she could co-sponsor it herself. So that was huge. Ruben Kiwin became the first incumbent Democrat to be challenged primarily due to his unwillingness to support Medicare for All. And I think that's really important because it shows how much momentum Medicare for All is gaining. But I want to get back to Denny Heck. So we all know that we've put pressure on Denny Heck. We've called him. We've, we've tweeted to him. We've emailed him. He just doesn't support Medicare for All. So what are we going to do about that? Well, I am happy to introduce you to Tambourine Borelli. Tambourine Borelli is the primary challenger to none other than Denny Heck. My name is Tambourine Borelli, and I am a candidate for Washington's 10th Congressional District. And I am running against the incumbent who not just doesn't support single-payer, but boldly rejects single-payer. And if that was not bad enough, in his town halls has, I might even say, the arrogance and confidence to look his constituents in the eye, and I was there, and have it on tape, to tell us, those that put him in office, exactly, 
that not only does he reject single payer, but that none of us will ever change his mind on the subject. And he didn't even stop there. But that we were wrong because we do support it. Get the heck out. <laughs> Let's get the heck out of Congress. <laughs> I think we just created a hashtag, I'm not sure. So we live in one of the most progressive and forward-thinking states in the country. I mean, you know, Washington leads the way. And I know that D.C., Washington, D.C., is known for being the home of politics. But I'd like to think that our home here in Washington, that we're the new Washington, that, that we are the ones, the driving force that will create what politics will be and should be. to making it so, the people that are sitting here on the steps and people like you. Is she not amazing? <laughs> that was fantastic. And she is primarying him mostly due to his unwillingness to co-sponsor HR 676. So Denny Heck becomes Democrat number two who's getting primaried because they won't back Medicare for All. And there's question in Washington, D.C. about whether or not Medicare for All is a litmus test. Well, you can ask Ruben Kiewin and Denny Heck about whether or not it's a litmus test. Now, the thing about Tambourine Borelli is that she's not just running on Medicare for All. She's also running on a very progressive platform, um, a living wage, tuition-free public colleges and universities, campaign finance reform, electoral reform. I mean, she she's the full package. She's great. So if you want to support Tambourine Borelli and learn more about her campaign, you can go to tambourineborelliforcongress.com to find out how to support her. And I want to reiterate what I've said before. To all the corporate Democrats who think that they can reject their constituents' desire for them to co-sponsor H.R. 676 and get away with it, you can't. You absolutely can't. And if you think you still can, well, then you need to talk to your colleagues, Ruben Kiewin and Denny Heck, and they're going to tell you exactly what happens if you don't get on board with Medicare for All. Your job is jeopardized, and you might be primaried by someone who will. So, uh, yeah, I'm really excited to welcome Tambourine Borelli to the already progressive list of 2018 candidates uh, and bring it on. Let's support her campaign and kick Denny Heck out of Congress. So at this point, for those of you who have tuned into the Humanist Report now for years, I've given probably hundreds of reasons as to why we should move towards a Medicare for All system. But the arguments that I keep putting forward, I don't think they're going to resonate as much as putting a face on Medicare for All would. Because, you know, for the people who don't already support Medicare for All and know about it, we're starting to move the needle in our direction, but I think that once we really see how this affects people on a personal level, more people will wake up and realize that Medicare for All is something that's necessary because people, I mean, without it, it's really it's really hurting a lot of average Americans. And there's a story recently that illustrates exactly why 
we have to fight for Medicare for all and why it's a moral issue that was incredibly touching. And just personally, it hit a little bit too close to home for me, but I, I couldn't not share it. So um, here it is. I apologize. I splurged. I stopped at McDonald's and I got a dollar hamburger and a dollar soda. Oh, you don't go out very often on 30 bucks a month. According to a study by United Way, more than one in three Idaho families struggle to afford basic needs. When his bill goes up, I gotta have the money to pay for it. Three and a half years ago, Betsy's husband, David, was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. Oh, it was rough. The stress was getting to me and I got sick. We made plans for surgery and I thought, well, I don't have anybody to watch him. I put him in the home a week before our 31st wedding anniversary. Without any major income, Betsy had to plan for life ahead. I spent six months slowing down my business and putting that up for sale and preparing for what lied ahead. I'm trying to live on as little as possible. That includes budgeting herself to $30 a month. The extra money I can save back to pay for his care. And as he worsens, it will get more. She manages this by cutting food costs. With the help of a Treasure Valley grocery store, she picks up its recently expired food for free. No corn today, but lots of mushrooms. However, she isn't the only one in need of lower food costs. She delivers most of her haul to a local food bank. Yeah, there's 215 houses here, and most of them are families. One of these families is Keith Hartman. Daddy, Ed, Betsy, they do so much to help people. My life is not even as busy as hers, but she spends a lot of time in doing things for other people. Despite her own situation, Keith said Betsy gives a lot in a subdivision that has very little. She strikes it off like it's casual, uh, but the things that she does is over and beyond uh, and very helpful. But between the food bank, visits with David and caring for her family, Betsy lives unsure of what the future holds. How long do you plan for? I have to be prepared to cover his bills because nothing's going to stop me from taking care of the man I love. He's the light of my life and I'll do anything I have to for him. Yeah, so she lives on $30 a month for what is presumably her grocery budget because she wants to make sure that she has enough money to care for her husband with Alzheimer's. This, is, this isn't a video of a third world country. This is happening in America. These are American citizens. For people to have to choose between eating and healthcare for a member of their family, it's a decision that we shouldn't have to make in the richest country in the world. And I just found, find it indefensible. And, you know, a lot of her story really resonated with me because... As I stated, it hits close to home. I mean, what she did was she would go through dumpsters and work with, you know, grocery stores to get expired food items and then not even take all of them for herself. She would donate them to the local food bank. I mean, what a commendable, good human being. I mean, that woman in that video, she's a hero. She's just, she's just a good person. And hearing her story really restores, you know, my faith in the American people because we all... We're the same. We all have the same ambitions. And I don't know if she's a Trump supporter. I don't know if she's a Bernie supporter. But what I do know is that she deserves better. She deserves to not have to choose between health care for her husband and eating. 
And I feel as though that's the most non-controversial, benign comment I've ever made. Because we're Americans. We should be taking care of each other. We're all in this together. And we have to fight for what's right. And Medicare for all certainly is what's right. And, you know, for me as a kid, growing up, when my dad became disabled and lost his job, if it weren't for food banks and people like this lady who would go through dumpsters and donate that food that she gets that expired to food banks, I wouldn't have eaten anything as a kid. But this is this is a struggle that Americans face. And yeah, I really feel for this woman. So if we ever had a reason to implement Medicare for all, it's these types of stories that really gives us that reason that I think reinvigorates us in the fight for Medicare for all because we, we, we can't just fight for ourselves. We have to fight for people like this woman uh, because it's the right thing to do. So over the past year on The Humanist Report, I've been covering grassroots activism at town halls to where people like Lauren Steiner, a huge Medicare for All progressive activist, will ask politicians whether or not they support single-payer. And after watching a lot of different answers from corporate Democrats, I think I've seen a pattern emerge, and I think you all would probably agree with this. First of all, they always try to come up with an excuse as to why they won't support Medicare for All, and then they almost immediately pivot afterwards to defending the Affordable Care Act. Well, you know, we can't we can't focus on single payer because we've got to uh, defend the Affordable Care Act from Republican attacks. And if they're kind enough, then they'll say, I think we should move towards a public option. So after seeing their responses, you know, I think that it's safe to say that they don't support single payer. And I'm only talking about the people who obfuscate about their position on single-payer because when you talk to some neoliberals like Claire McCaskill and Dianne Feinstein, they just straight up say, no, I don't support single-payer. So here's what I want to do. I want to take a look back at some of the corporate Democrats I've covered at town halls and show you their responses when asked about single-payer. And after that video, we're going to juxtapose their answers with the answers of true progressives and the difference is night and day. So first of all, these are the corporate Democrats and what they have to say when asked about single payer. Um, would you support a single payer plan if it came to a vote? Um, I, 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 I'm going to disappoint a lot of you. This is kind of how I roll. Um, a lot of you want me to say yes, and I would say if a single payer came up to, for a vote right now, I would not vote for it. A lot of Americans still want to see changes to the health care system sure. in America. Of course. Do you feel like the move for Democrats now is to make single payer a plank in the 2018 platform? No, I don't. Well, are you in favor I'm of it or no? From, we have a little. We have this young boy. Okay, this young child. I just was thinking of England right now and London, UK. This one child, right? They're deciding now whether that child gets services or not. I don't think that would be a decision we'd make in America. So you're not for Medicare for all. I'm just trying to understand. I'm for, I'm looking at it. I want to do whatever is best. I am not here ignoring your suggestions. Um, I, I could have simply said no to this. I could have simply said no to this and then gone about my day and enjoyed my Saturday. But I know this is important. And that is why I'm here. And I am listening to you. But all I'm saying is, and, 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 and I hope you understand, this is not that I oppose your, the bill. This is not that I oppose the effort that you're making. As a matter of fact, I am grateful that you're making this effort. But right now, again, we're one or two votes away from getting the Affordable Care Act repealed in the Senate. You're not in the Then we're going to look at broader things. Single payer is one of them. So that is on uh, the table? Medicare, well, 
sure, many things are on the table. I have declined to become a co-sponsor of uh, HR 6776, and I, and I do so because I frankly don't think it's fully formed. How are you going to help support single-payer health care? Well, is going to mean complete takeover by the government of all health care. I'm not there. If single-payer health care. Yeah, so, so I mean, you haven't answered the question. Yeah, so let me Why answer this way. It? And let me answer this way. And let me answer this, because I appreciate that. And I know many people think that their uh, Medicare for all is the answer. But, uh, and it may be. <laughs> let, let, me, let me just answer this. It may be, but here's the fight. Here's the fight. What do we do with all of those people that have health care now under the Affordable Care Act? Um, I haven't really thought out in my head um, exactly what we would offer and, and how we would do it, but uh, they're going to lose control of the Senate and the House if they go forward with anything that resembles what happened in the House, and we'll have the opportunity to fix it. So a common theme in all of their answers is that they just do this tap dance. They don't want to tell you that they don't support single-payer, but really they don't support single-payer, and they're trying to, you know, they're trying to ease the blow and, you know, <laughs> make it seem as though, you know, their position isn't as bad as it really is. But look, here's the thing. And they, they want us to think, certainly, that they support single-payer, but they at least want to tell us enough so that way they have plausible deniability. So when they inevitably vote against it, they can say, look, I, I never said unequivocally I support it, but I said, you know, maybe I think about it. But look, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to show you how progressives respond to single-payer, at least the ones that I've interviewed on my channel, and certainly there's more. Um, and this is going to be a much shorter clip because here is what they have to say about single payer. So there is a bill in Congress, H.R. 676. Um, this would expand Medicare to everyone. Would you co-sponsor that if you were elected and support a single payer health care system? Yes, I, I probably would have sponsored it. Absolutely. 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 Excellent. Yeah, Excellent. Yeah, my, my one word answer is either take your pick. Yes, sir, absolutely. So I know, you know, definitely it's Medicare for all. I don't think I'll be able to get there um, quick enough to co-sponsor. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'll ask if I can fax it over maybe. The difference is like night and day because when you watch the neoliberal answers and then the progressive answers, it's pretty clear. You know exactly where they stand. They unequivocally support single payer. So most of them just straight up said absolutely. That was the first word that came out of their mouth. And it wasn't just absolutely. I mean, they were enthusiastic. And even some of their answers, I mean, Cori Bush said, I probably would have sponsored Medicare for All. We have Amy Valela saying that she is so anxious to co-sponsor Medicare for All, she would like to fax in her signature. So, I mean, you know exactly where they stand. When you ask someone if they support Medicare for All, when you go to a town hall of a politician, that's the type of answer you should get. Absolutely. And if that's not the answer you get, if they try to do this tap dance and beat around the bush and say, well, I kind of support a public option first, then we know to dismiss them as someone who's not an ally to single payer. So this is why I can't help but be thankful for organizations like Justice Democrats and Brand New Congress who are introducing us to these types of candidates. And also, we have to be thankful for organizations like Our Revolution for putting pressure on incumbent Democrats to support Medicare for All. So here's the takeaway from this and why I'm showing you this. When I see the differences and responses between neoliberals and progressives, I really feel optimistic because these are people that are running for Congress. So when you look at how much enthusiasm for single-payer we see, 
at the candidate level, not to mention the grassroots level, but at the candidate level of people who have declared their candidacy for 2020, the future looks really bright. And I really feel optimistic about Medicare for all. And I wanted to share that optimism with you all because I know that in this day and age, <laughs> there's almost no good news. Let's face it. There, there's basically, you know, we're bombarded with bad news story after bad news story. But these are the people that they're really the future. So if you watch this and you feel optimistic, then you should feel optimistic. A few weeks ago on the podcast, I talked about the upcoming Convergence Conference where progressives like Jimmy Dore and Tim Black would be teaming up with the Draft Bernie organization to hand deliver him a petition asking him to lead a new People's Party. Now, they would also be asking Bernie to attend a town hall with them and Cornell West where they would basically make their pitch to Bernie Sanders as to why he should lead a new People's Party. Now, most of my viewers who saw that video were excited about the People's Convergence Conference, but probably one of the biggest questions I saw uh, in the comment section was, well, why would Bernie Sanders have to lead a new People's Party? Why can't he just join the Greens and run that way? Now, this was actually a question that I had as well, and back in March, I actually interviewed Nick Branna. He came on the show, and I asked him that very same question. I asked him why it was necessary when we already have the Green Party, who is already progressive, they have a progressive platform and they have ballot access in many states. Why would that be necessary? And I wanted to share his response with you guys because, again, a lot of you had the same question that I had. And I think that Nick Branna's answer was really great and important. So do you think that it would be acceptable still if Bernie Sanders were to join the Green Party, for example, whereas, you know, they've existed for decades. They have the infrastructure and whatnot all in place. Or do you really do feel as though it's preferable to have a brand new party, you know, a fresh start? I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Because that's something I kind of wanted to ask you. Yeah, I think it would be better. <laughs> There's a lot, almost anything would be better than what we're doing now, I think. Um, you know, the Democrats have made it very clear that they are, that they do not intend on being the vehicle for the political revolution. And they've also made it clear that we don't have enough leverage to really impact them, you know. Uh, and their decision making. And so I do think that it would be better, but I think it would be second best to Bernie starting a new party. You know, and the minute Bernie does anything, then that becomes, right now, as I'm sure you've seen and we all know, there's all kinds of parallel efforts out there. You know, there's just dozens of smaller parties who are getting started. You know, uh, everybody's essentially trying to unite under under a single banner, you know, here and there across the country. Uh, the minute that Bernie started a party, that would be it. You know, that would be the unifying banner that everyone would come together around. Because like I said, he already did it. And so I think that while joining the Green Party would, would be better, uh, I do think that uh, starting a new party um, would be the best because it would be the most invigorating for people. I, you know, in, in, I've spent a lot of time talking to people and burners about kind of what they want, you know? And you would think that the Green Party would be kind of like a perfect solution, you know? Have, it's, okay, it's there, it has ballot access in like 19 states, you know? But I've found that burners really wanna build something new, you know? And right. regardless of which path we take, it has to, it, it's gonna rely on inspiring people. You have to actually bring people um, into the fold. And the, the other thing too, is that I think that 
the Green Party has an association kind of as a far left party, you know, mm -hmm. and we as progressives identify with that, you know, and we have no problem with that. But there's the coalition that Bernie put together was actually much larger than kind of the left, you know, right. than progressives. It was actually conservatives, you know, especially in Vermont, like conservatives love him and where, where they know him most. You know, we've seen him doing these town halls recently where uh, where conservatives just come are so attracted to what he's saying too, you know, and so that's why the uh, the idea of building something that really is kind of a party for the ninety nine percent, you know, that can't just be progressive; it has to be all working people, you know. And and Bernie's, I think, the best suited and totally capable of doing that. So I think that that was a really important point that Nick Branham made especially about crossover appeal, because Bernie Sanders is someone who was able to lure in a lot of conservative voters. Um, and that's that's something I didn't think about. And that's why I think it is important to start a new party and not have Bernie Sanders work within the Green Party, because if you identify with the Green Party, then that crossover appeal that Bernie Sanders once had would probably be lost because there's a lot of conservative voters or moderate conservatives who like what Bernie Sanders has to say, but would just unequivocally reject him if he was associated with the Green Party, who, in their opinion, is a far-left party. Now, at the same time, even though I do think Bernie Sanders should form a new People's Party, that doesn't necessarily mean that we completely abandon the Green Party, because I do think the Green Party is important, and they give a really strong voice to grassroots activists, and I really, really think we should continue to push for the expansion and you know growth of the green party especially at the local level so um i think we have to have a multifaceted approach we've got to go with draft bernie a building of the green party justice democrats brand new congress i really feel as though if we if we approach this strategically from different angles that's going to be the best approach we've got to have a kitchen sink approach as i've called it in the past because we don't necessarily know what strategy will be conducive to getting the policies we want. So we've got to try everything because we've got nothing to lose in trying all of these strategies. And I think, you know, I would encourage you to watch the full interview I did with Nick because he also talks about how a lot of people are seeing, you know, these organizations like Draft Bernie and the Green Party and Justice Democrats as diametrically opposing organizations when really that's that's not really true they're they're all working towards the same goal they just have different ideas as to how we should implement the policies we want strategically and how we should fight for these policies i just wanted to provide you all with that point of clarification because i think that nick made a fantastic point that i didn't really acknowledge and you know that's why i had the same question as you all uh so there you have it i i'd say please watch the full interview because it was very insightful I thought it would be useful to take the time to address a pretty big elephant in the room, and that is the negativity being spewed towards Bernie Sanders. And I'm not talking about, you know, objective criticism of Bernie Sanders, because certainly I disagree with him on a number of issues. I don't agree with Bernie Sanders when it comes to a lot of foreign policy issues. I certainly disagree with him on Israel-Palestine. I think that he talks too much about Russia. So, I mean, really, there's a lot that I disagree with him about policy-wise and to some extent politically. But I've even seen progressives Talk about Bernie Sanders in a really negative way, and this prompted me to kind of ask the question, 
do most progressives still support Bernie Sanders? Because, you know, me personally, I do think we should support Bernie Sanders, because even if you might disagree with him strategically and think that he's calling Democrats too much, which he is, I do th still think that he's a huge ally to the progressive movement and a leader to the progressive movement because he's pushing for the policies that I want him to push for, nonetheless, you know, in spite of whatever criticisms you might have. So I asked my Patreon patrons if they approve or disapprove of Bernie Sanders, and the overwhelming majority, with 62 votes, are still feeling the burn in 2017 and approve of Bernie Sanders, whereas only five people disapprove and three people don't know. So I wanted to share their insight. So Louis Ventura states, I've known Bernie for a long time. You can't get a more consistent politician who stands by what he says. David Bondi writes, the only thing that would turn me away from Sanders is if he pulled a Howard Dean, something I highly doubt he would do as Sanders has basically been on the same side of the same issues for practically four decades. I absolutely can trust Sanders. Jazz states, I still support Bernie and believe he is doing what he believes is right for the people of our country. That said, I am very skeptical the Democratic Party can be reformed. The corporatist Dem elites refuse to let progressives lead, and I do not see that changing. Captain Jingle Pants states, he's still fighting for us, but he needs to be more vocal about the Democrats not fighting hard enough for us. I know he needs their support for 2020, but he's eventually going to have to realize they're not going to come to our side of the table. And finally, the OP Kingdom writes, I loved Bernie in 2016, canvassed for him twice, donated multiple times, voted for him in the primary, but I'm starting to have my doubts. His foreign policy on Russia leaves a lot to be desired, and I wonder why he hasn't shown more strength against the DNC's un-American actions in the primary. If Bernie ran in 2020, I'd likely vote for him again, but it would be with less enthusiasm than last year. Yeah, so I think that this in insight is, is really... It's important because we need to know how progressives feel. And, you know, I'm a little bit relieved to know that most progressives still support Bernie Sanders. But one thing that this poll shows, and, and of course, this isn't a scientifically <laughs> accurate poll that goes without saying. But one thing that this shows me is that progressives, you know, in spite of the fact that neoliberals like to say that Bernie Sanders has this cult of personality around him, that's not true because we still can be objective and criticize Bernie Sanders. I've criticized Bernie Sanders. Many of us have criticized Bernie Sanders. And I think that that's important because when you really put this candidate or any politician on a pedestal, you set yourself up for disappointment. But by acknowledging Bernie Sanders' flaws and saying he needs to improve on foreign policy and X, Y, and Z, I think that it shows that we are the more reasonable people and we can acknowledge that even if we disagree with Bernie Sanders in some areas, he's still far and away the best ally progressives have in Congress. So this was a really great poll. Thank you so much to anyone that participated. And for those who shared your thoughts, I really find this very helpful. Uh, but I also want to know what people in the comment section think who didn't participate in this particular poll. Because look, I, again, I've seen not, you know, not too much, but certainly a significant number of people who claim to be progressive, but no longer follow Bernie Sanders. And I really think that um, as progressives, we need to listen to one another and not shut down debate. So please tell me your thoughts down below. I'd love to hear from you. So I wanted to do something a little bit different and actually do a Patreon Q&A. And this is a segment that I would like to make at least semi-regular because I think that this is a really fun way for me to kind of interact 
with viewers and it allows you guys to kind of pick my brain and ask me about anything. So let's get into it. So Marcus Tomasi Sardi asks, what is the alternative platform if YouTube decides to flat out suppress free speech or crack down even more on independent media? What is plan B? So at this point in time, I don't really see another platform that can challenge YouTube. I do think Vimeo is one option. I checked out vid.me and it seems a little bit too small to be viable at this point. Really, the only other challenger to YouTube, as much as I don't want to admit it, is probably Facebook. I know that they are working on making their website more friendly to videos. They're giving us more options to optimize currently. Uploading videos to Facebook is very difficult, um, and sometimes they just they forget it and post the link. But, you know, I think Facebook is probably the alternative, but hopefully Patreon can one day be the alternative to where they allow us to just upload videos to Patreon, which would be a really nice way to interact with viewers. Um, because e even if someone isn't a Patreon, you can still make posts to Patreon public. So if they allowed us to upload videos to Patreon... That would be a game changer. And they're already experimenting with uh, live streams on Patreon. So that's another alternative. So, you know, I'm definitely thinking about plan B because it's smart. But if you have any recommendations, feel free to let me know. Alex Bills asks, Mike, I have worked several campaigns since getting involved with the Sanders campaign. We are now about 14 months since the 2016 presidential Democratic nomination cycle. And still, in my opinion, there is no organized system to bind together all the disparate progressive groups in the country. We need congressional district-sized directors, assistant directors, canvassers, fund bankers, fundraisers, etc., where everyone is tied into a structure with contact information all with one goal, to get progressives elected to state and federal posts. Yeah, you know, this is something that isn't necessarily my area of expertise, uh, but I think that organizations like Justice Democrats and Brand New Congress certainly are helping with that effort. When I spoke with Sam Ronan, he was designing an app that kind of allowed you to, um, or gave you information about how you can run for Congress in your area, um, I think maybe that's one way, but I, I do see what you're saying about the need for some type of national database that will help progressives get elected. Um, and that is something that would be great with the specific goal in mind. And, you know, the fact that you're telling me this as someone who is a grassroots campaign coordinator to, you know, various degrees, I think that's important. So, you know, I think that we do need something like that. Hopefully, you know, someone will step up and really fill the void. Brian Gonzalez asks, Mike, what's your favorite genre of music? I know it's not related at all to politics or policy, but I'm a big music junkie and I was curious about your music taste. So I would say that my favorite genre of music is probably going to be, it's a tie. So it's between R&B and hip hop and, um, EDM, specifically house and, you know, to a lesser extent, dubstep. Um, and I've talked about this before on a different Q&A and a lot of people didn't like my taste in music, but, you know, you can't really choose what type of music you like. It just chooses you. And I really grew up listening to R&B and hip hop, you know, and rap, and I really like it. But, you know, over the course of the last couple of years, I've grown to appreciate house um, and EDM and some dubstep artists. So, you know, I try to have a more varied 
uh, approach to music and listen to other things, but I always end up going back to, you know, R&B and EDM. Those are kind of my two go-to genres. Abdulatef Alzamel asks, Mike, can you show us your tattoo? Me and my friend are fighting what kind of tattoo you have. I said it looks like a boat. My friend said it looks like a woman. So which one is it? We want to know. Well, you guys are both wrong, although your friend may be right because it's actually an astronaut. It could be a female astronaut, so I guess that your friend would be the closest. But yeah, it's an astronaut with um, a galaxy, and you know, it may seem weird to some people, but this is a tattoo that does have a lot of meaning to me, um, and I really personally like it. And you know, tattoos are something that are so subjective, so yeah, you know, thanks for asking. I'm excited to show it. Christian Veneman asks, what's your favorite episode of Rick and Morty so far? My favorites are Pickle Rick because it was such an awesome action-packed episode and Rest and Relaxation. I thought the whole Toxic Rick slash Toxic Morty concept was great and I think it's safe to say that Morty finally lost his virginity in this episode. That is tough. I, I definitely say that um, Pickle Rick is up there as probably one of my top three, if not my favorite, because it was just... It was action fact. It was awesome. But another episode that I really liked was the Defend Summer episode. I don't know, know the title off the top of my head, but when uh, Rick and Morty left Summer in the spaceship and told the spaceship to defend Summer, I think that, you know, nothing but hilarity ensued after that. But there's so many episodes. I don't think I've watched a Rick and Morty episode that I didn't like um, or laugh at. So the series is phenomenal. It's definitely my favorite cartoon I think it probably overtook South Park. The show is just great. If you haven't watched Rick and Morty, I highly recommend that you check it out. The OP Kingdom asks, Can you talk about the relative strengths and weaknesses of the Green Party and how supporting them is better or worse than backing an entirely new party? I always hear people who say new parties are impossible, denigrate the Greens for not being big slash organized enough, while others insist a new party with far less infrastructure slash ballot access is the way to go over greens. What gives? Why do the greens get overlooked? My response is that I kind of see the arguments on both sides. On one hand, I really think it's important that we build up the Green Party because they, they've been around for a really long time. They have a proven progressive record. They have a progressive platform. They've run nothing but progressive candidates. But also, one thing that Nick Branagh kind of brought to my attention, which is the director of uh, Draft Bernie, is that, you know, if we really want Bernie Sanders to take over a party and if we want a party that's going to take over the republicans spot or the democrats spot in our two-party system then a new party would probably be the best option because the green party even though i love them they don't have much crossover appeal admittedly because a lot of conservative voters that might otherwise support bernie might disassociate themselves with the greens as you know they're just too far left now that's really unfair to the greens i think because the greens if you look at their policies well, when you compare their policies to public opinion polls, they're popular. But So it, it, it sucks. And this is a problem that Greens have in many different countries, not just the United States. So my, my approach to this is let's do both. Let's also, let's build up the Greens while simultaneously trying to get Bernie Sanders to start a new party. I think that these are both equally important goals that we should have. Ryan Harper says, do you have a dream job other than what you do now? Um, you know, my, my dream job has always been to be a teacher and not at some prestigious, you know, Ivy League university. I always wanted to teach at a community college because, you know, for me as someone who was socioeconomically disadvantaged in community college, I met professors who really shaped my identity. And 
instilled me with enough confidence to go forward, even though I thought I was too dumb to finish anything in school. Um, so I would like to help people in that way. But in terms of, you know, my job, the humanist report kind of fell in my lap. I started it, didn't really think much would come of it. I kind of wanted to get some practice in before teaching. Uh, and now I, I, I couldn't ever imagine not doing this. I just love it so much. So I guess you could say that this is my dream job, but it wasn't something that I anticipated me having because who would ever expect that, you know, they're going to grow up and host a podcast. Not very many people. Louis Ventura states, hey, Mike, love your well thought out commentary and your example calls to representatives and senators. Will you be going full time with the Humanist Report anytime soon? Yes. So at this point, I have basically gone full. I've officially gone full time. Um, I kind of worked my way into going full time over the course of the last year. I was in a PhD program or working for one of my professors, working for you know the college, and then I decided to not take classes. You know, in uh, fall of 2016, take that year off you know, take a sabbatical and just work on my dissertation. And from there, I kind of just stopped working on my dissertation. And I can still go back. Um, you know, I can still do that if I wanted to. Um, but basically, at this point, I guess you could say I'm on a permanent sabbatical. I don't want to say I dropped out because that just sounds weird. But I'm, I'm, I'm doing the human support full time now. And really, when I, my, I made that official, you know, cutting of the cord and um, started to really go, you know, uh, all in on human support and do it full time. Um, a couple months later, the YouTube <laughs> adpocalypse happened, and I thought, holy crap, what did I do? But, you know, with Patreon, it's possible that, you know, I can I can pay the bills. That's all I care about. I don't care about making, you know, a ton of money. I just want to pay my bills. And at this point, I can do that doing the human support full-time. So, uh, yeah, I'm full-time now. Sherry asks, TYT has not done much coverage of Draft Bernie. Aggressive Progressives is an exception. I've also seen a TYT Politics interview with Nick Branagh by Jordan Sheridan, and I've heard Jenk disagree with the movement indirectly with comments like, don't tell them to run you out of the party. I understand Jenk's issues with Draft Bernie or any third party, although I completely disagree. However, TYT is the biggest progressive online media source. I feel there is a duty to cover Draft Bernie the same way I felt that there was a duty for MSNBC to cover Bernie Sanders I want to know your thoughts on this without getting you in any trouble. <laughs> well, I can't get in trouble for TYT. Um, if anyone could would get in trouble by TYT, it would definitely be Kyle because he's had some some pretty uh, vocal disagreements with them in the past. But, um, you know, I would love to see TYT cover Draft Bernie more. What I would really like to see from TYT is I'd like to see them cover more grassroots um, activism, you know, at town halls across the country, more grassroots-oriented campaigns. And I think that Jenk knows that this is really what a lot of progressives want, which is why he's trying to expand their, their team of investigative reporters. Um, but here's what I'll tell you, because... TYT is never going to be able to fully satisfy all of your policy interests and, you know, everything you want to hear them talk about. And I'm not going to be able to do, to do that. So I would recommend that you fill the gap that you think is missing. So the reason why I decided to start a par podcast, you all know, is because I wanted to get some public speaking skills, you know, before I started teaching college courses, but also because I really felt like there was... There was something missing in independent media. Not, I mean, I, I loved Kyle Kalinske. I loved David Pakman, the Young Turks. I watched them for years. But what I felt like, what I felt was like I had something unique to offer and I wanted to talk about other stories that weren't being addressed. So there's a lot of topics out there. And if you think that independent media outlets aren't covering them as much as you think they should be, you can step up and be a member of independent media. It just takes a webcam. 
and internet. That's all it takes. And um, I think the more voices in independent media we have, the better. Because we don't want to just, you know, have a couple of big, you know, um, independent media channels. Like we've got TOIT, The Humanist Report, Tim Black, Kyle Kalinske, David Pakman. And that's great. But we want more voices. I think we all can agree that more voices are really, really important. Because we don't just want ourselves to be the faces of the progressive movement. Because the progressive movement is incredibly diverse, you know, both descriptively and ideologically. So I think that the more people that tune in, the better off we'll all be. And I would certainly love to see a lot more women get into um, independent media because we just have all, it's dominated right now by a lot of dudes. Not, you know, not that that's necessarily a bad thing, but I just love to hear from their perspective of women because the Democratic Party establishment likes to pretend like they don't exist, that there's no progressive women, but that couldn't be further from the truth. Claudette Cohen writes, Hiya, Mike. THR is my go-to for political commentary because I find your counter-arguments well-researched, articulate, and substantial. Oh, thank you so much. Along with being entertaining and often quite funny. Other folks tend to fall back too much on rant or mockery or opinion or just another joke for my taste and overlook the reasoning and provision of evidence that do more to clinch an argument. I was wondering if it comes naturally to you to debate so well, or if perhaps you were schooled. You'd have gotten easy A's in my academic argument class. So tell us, where'd you get the knack for political debate? Well, first and foremost, thank you so much for, you know, the ego boost. That's always nice after reading, you know, quite a bit of hate comments <laughs> every once in a while. So I really appreciate the kind words. You know, I honestly don't, I don't know that I would be good in a debate because I, I've never debated someone really in any official way before. I mean, I've had political arguments with my brother on numerous occasions and they've gotten pretty heated because he's as opinionated as I am, but just he's very conservative and the opposite side of the spectrum. But, you know, I don't know that I'm as quick on my toes as other people would be. So I honestly couldn't tell you that I would be the best person for a debate. I will say that I am better at really looking at ways to present information because that's kind of what I did, you know, through my life as a graduate student. You know, I tried to present, find new ways to present arguments that we've all heard, but in a different way, in a unique way and try to break it down so anyone can understand it. And really, I think just really taking the time to plan out this process and, you know, think about how I want to say things um, is why my arguments are um, are good, you know, apparently. But of course, that's subjective. Hopefully, they're good. I'm, I'm certainly trying. Um, but yeah, before I come on the show, there are days worth of planning just for these hour-long episodes. I always think about what I want to say in advance. I have a lot of bullet points that I that I try to hit. Um, and yeah, that's what, that's what I do. So hopefully... Um, that will answer your question. So yeah, that, that's all I've got here. Uh, thank you all so much for submitting the questions. I love doing these Q&As. They're always fun. Go watch Rick and Morty if you have it, because you are definitely missing out. Hey everyone, so I am here with Sarah Smith running to represent Washington's 9th district, and she is part of brand new Congress. So I'm here with her. She's going to talk about her campaign. Sarah, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Well, hey, I appreciate what you're doing. You are running a campaign based exclusively on grassroots donations, zero corporate dollars, no super PAC. So at this point, it's safe to say that that's a really difficult thing to do in this day and age when money drives politics. So what made you want to run a grassroots campaign with brand new Congress as opposed to basically just taking the easy way out and taking lots of corporate money? 
Um, because I mean, I guess the famous saying is the easy thing and the hard or the right thing and the easy thing aren't always the same. Um, so I've grown up pretty much since the crash happened, since Wall Street got away with taking uh, trillions of dollars ultimately from from individual people. Um, I've grown up in a in a, a generation that's suspicious of money and politics anyway. But now that I've gotten older and and we've seen it come out more and more and more, and we've seen the effects that that major contributions that super PACs can have on candidates' votes and on incumbents' votes, um, I just don't. It's that's messy for me. That's I don't want to represent businesses. I want to represent people. So why would I take money from businesses if I want to represent people? Right. And now I think with all the skepticism in politics about how politics, you know, they'll say one thing and then they get elected and they do something entirely different. We now know that that's almost always the direct result of money. So it makes sense that if you are wanting to represent the people, you only take money from the people. So I think that's great. Now, one thing that I always ask the people running for Congress is there is a bill in Congress, Representative uh, John Conyers, H.R. 676. So if you're elected, would you co-sponsor that? Absolutely. So I've told the story about my dad a lot. My dad um, is an older gentleman. He's part of the greatest generation. He um, survived the Nazi V2 bombings that leveled London. He worked four jobs. He put himself through college. He came from nothing. And I learned more about his story very recently. My dad's story is, is long and storied itself. But um, so he worked four jobs. He left England. He came here with almost nothing. And he, he started to try and build this life for us. And he did. And he seized it. And then Wall Street crash happened. And it took everything. It pushed us to sell our house. It pushed me to go live on my own at 17. Um, it was a really hard time. But he survived it. He made it through. He He pulled through. And now my family is fine and happy. He survived all of that. And he was hospitalized and almost died after all of that because he stepped on a stinging nettle when he was gardening. And it was actually Medicare that saved my dad's life. It was, the, my dad had access to Medicare. He was able to go to the hospital. My parents walked out with no medical debt. And medical bankruptcy is the number one reason for bankruptcy in this country. So my family was terrified that we were going to be staring down the brink of this. But then Medicare kicked in and we walked out. My parents were able to push through it. And it just seems crazy to me that we have a system right now that thinks people choose to get sick. That people have any kind of agency in that. Um, so absolutely, I would support H.R. 676 Medicare for All. And not 13 years after it was introduced, I would support it from day one. <laughs> That's a great distinction to make. So here's what I want to ask you, though, to kind of follow up with that. So what would you say to other Democrats who respond by saying, well, you know, I can't co-sponsor H.R. 676 right now because, you know, the Affordable Care Act is constantly under attack. I have to take all the energy I have and dedicated to protecting the ACA. So what would you say to that? I'd say that they're trying to turn it into this arbitrary distinction that's one or the other, but it's not about one or the other. You can have both. You can co-sign HR 676 while still trying to prop up uh, Obamacare or the Affordable Care Act. Um, you don't have to choose between the two. In fact, uh, the Affordable Care Act right now still has a lot that needs to be sorted out. It still has a lot of its own problems. And H.R. 676, Medicare for All, would alleviate a lot of those problems. So they, these Democrats that are saying, I can't right now, should be signing on to it in addition to, to helping defend the Affordable Care Act because the Affordable Care Act is going to help uh, bridge the gap until we can implement H.R. 676. So they go hand in hand. It's not either or. Right. And I think that's a really important point to make. Now, one thing that I wanted to ask you about is kind of with that uh, 
critique that we see against people who are pushing for Medicare for all like you and I. Um, would you say that the Democratic Party, by and large, you know, the label itself is becoming increasingly unpopular, even though we have Donald Trump as president? I mean, what would you say the Democratic Party, uh, by and large, needs to fix if you can kind of narrow it down to a couple of different things? I think the Democratic Party needs to really make a decision on who they want to represent. Um, I've been a lifelong Democrat myself, and the party itself has changed so much. And when you look at the timeline, we just keep moving farther and farther right. And people talk about obstructionists. And I've, I had someone say, oh, you want to go to Congress and be an obstructionist. But that's not what I want to do, and that's not what the Democrats should be doing. But they shouldn't let themselves be pulled farther and farther right. Um, we all need to make compromises. I understand that. But right now, the only side that's compromised is the Democrats. And they've compromised at the expense of the working people. And that's who they were established to represent. That's what our party is all about. Our whole mantra is the working party, right? We're the party of the working class. But we're not fighting for the working class. And sometimes fighting means making sure you understand what concessions you should and shouldn't make. And so I'm tired of watching Democrats make concessions and continue to take corporate money um, and then continue to act in acts in participate in acts of self-sabotage, really, because we look back at the at the Democratic election, at the Democratic presidential primary. And there's this borderline self-sabotage where they're trying to tell their voters what you want or what you need. And the last thing I need as a young female millennial is um, a person that has never been a young female millennial telling me what I need when I'm trying to clearly spell it out for them. So I think they need to start listening and stop telling. And I think that you know what you need. We all know what we need. So that that's such an important point. They need to listen and stop telling us. But, you know, it seems as though... They don't really want to do that. So that's why I'm very thankful for campaigns like yours and organizations like Justice Democrats and Brand New Congress, because you guys are actually listening to people. The difference between your campaign and campaigns of corporate Democrats, if you will, is that they never talk to constituents. And I don't know how you can represent a district if you're not in that district. So it's really strange to me. I don't know if you heard about the article from Politico to where Democrats were actually holding meetings on how to talk to people. And if you have to have a meeting on how to talk to people, or maybe it was a seminar, then I think you're a little bit out of touch. Now, another really important thing that I want to touch on is net neutrality, because you're already at a disadvantage because you're not taking corporate money. But with your types of campaign, um, you know, and it goes for Stephen Jaffe, you know, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, without the internet, I think that your guys' campaigns would be really, really much more disadvantaged, pretty much. So do you have anything to say about net neutrality and what you could possibly do to fight for it in Congress? Net neutrality is so important. Maintaining a neutral space on the internet is something that I absolutely intend to advocate for. I grew up a child of the internet. Um, I, when I was very young, the internet started to become a big thing. I remember our first Macintosh computer coming into the house and I remember AOL back when <laughs> it too. was first cool. Yeah. Um, so a child of the internet, I, I recognize the, the benefits and I've seen the improvements we've made because of free access to it. And the way that I look at net neutrality is I actually look at it as an issue of free speech. So the internet is now, it's the digital free speech platform. It's, it's um, kind of like how college campuses all have this free speech area. This is like such a, a general free speech area. The, the internet needs to remain open because it's, a, it's an open trade of information. Um, it's an open trade of conversation. It's, it's a, an open sharing and, and responding to ideas. This is a free speech problem. This isn't a problem of, of um, 
of internet companies. This isn't a problem of utilities. This is a problem of people having access to information and, and, and the access to respond to that information in kind. So this is something that I would definitely treat as more in line with the First Amendment than anything else. I agree with that 100%. Now, would you say, let's say hypothetically speaking, that net neutrality does go the way of the dodo. How would you think that would impact your campaign? Let's say you were running your campaign where we don't have net neutrality. Um, do you think that would hurt your campaign? I definitely think it has the potential to impact any campaign uh, because essentially cable companies can decide, oh, this person is someone I want this person to vote for. So their page is free. But if you want to access the grassroots campaigns, if you want to access these other candidates, you have to pay extra. So then people are paying more money just to be able to know who is even running in their area. But they know that this person's running for free. So it's kind of like they get to tell you who you should vote for without telling you who you should vote for. And that's it all circles back to free speech. They shouldn't be allowed to tell me uh, who, what I can and can't say and what I can and can't read. It's akin to seeing somebody go into the library and pull out all the all the encyclopedias and say, you can't have this aggregate of information. You can only buy them one at a time. Um, and it's it's something very similar in that vein to me. So I think campaigns like this one, campaigns like like Alexandria's, like uh, Paula Jean's, I think all of our campaigns would would face the potential that we could suffer. And we'd, str we'd struggle more under this chokehold that the two-party system already has, because right now we have this dichotomy of two parties, and lack of net neutrality is just going to exacerbate that problem. Sure, absolutely. Yeah, I, I could totally see that. Uh, now, one thing that I wanted to ask you about is even though you're running as a Democrat, it seems as though the ideas that you're espousing aren't necessarily in line with the aggregate party. So my question is, what would you do if you were elected to kind of help break up that two-party duopoly or at least move towards opening up our democracy? I mean, would you support something like ranked choice voting or proportional representation, even if that might, you know, um, put up a barrier to you getting reelected if you were to win? So the big thing is, especially in my mind, is it's not about me. Right. It's it's not about my being reelected. It's about what's best for our country and what's going to help other people have the opportunity. So I've got this unique chance to step up and, and challenge an incumbent um, and run this campaign. I want to make sure that if if someone if the times change and representation wants to change and people want someone new, that they have that ability to challenge me and take over that seat. Um, I am very much in favor of ranked choice voting. I think this chokehold that we've got has become this snowball effect. We've got this two-party chokehold. We've got money in politics. We've got special interest lobbyists. We have things like um, you know, pharmaceutical money, uh, companies spending so much more money on lobbying than they aren't actually researching. And it's just become this, this packed house of cards that has to come down at some point in time. And I think ranked choice voting would do a lot for people. I think it would let people reach across party lines more easily. Um, it would let people express, you know, oh, if someone said, I really want, you know, John Doe to be president, but I, and my second choice would be Dan Smith. And then someone else said, no, absolutely not. This other random person like Leroy Jenkins would be my number one pick, but we both agree that, you know, um, Dan Smith would be the second best person. It's, it's a way to bridge the gap. Um, it's a way for people to be able to express opinions better. It, it removes that, that vice grip on our politics and it allows things like third parties to be an actual viable option, which I think is really important. We need to be able to choose um, realistically beyond just Republican and Democrat. And people always talk about this healing and this divide and reaching across the aisle. And one of the ways we can do that is by having more options between all of us for who we want to run our country. Yep, 
that's exactly it. So what so what you're saying all sounds really great, but I know that if we were to compare you to your opponent, probably the Washington State Democratic Party and the National DNC would say, well, you know, we're going to have to support the incumbent. So why are you better than your incumbent? What are some policies that um, your opponent is supporting that you think um, he shouldn't be supporting? So I've answered this question a lot. Um, if you think that the Democratic Party hasn't done anything wrong and you think that losing a thousand seats uh, nationwide since 2008 is fine and they shouldn't change anything about what they're doing or what they stand for, then by all means, you know, Adam Smith is your guy. He is as establishment as they come. Um, he vote, he's, he's categorized as a rank and file Democrat. Um, and he spent 21 years being a, a moderate Democrat, a self-described moderate. He's in the new Democrats coalition with Debbie Wasserman Schultz. Um, he, uh, he voted in favor of the Iraq war. He voted for the Patriot Act. He voted to reinstate the Patriot Act. Um, but then he recanted that vote because he misunderstood the same bill that was introduced to him a second time, I guess. But um, of course, so, yeah, you know, how that was, you know, so much going on. Um, but if you are happy with the establishment, then by all means, vote for him. But if you want a representative that's going to actually fight for things like like Medicare for all, like H.R. 676, if you want a representative that recognizes that we have bigger problems than inflating the military budget. We need to invest in infrastructure. Um, if you want a representative that recognizes that free college is the way that we're going to help curb this looming student debt crisis, that recognizes that the student debt crisis is an impending disaster for the economy, then vote for me. Because it's not going to take me 13 years to suddenly turn around a week ago and claim that I'm a progressive. Um, it's it's not going to take me 21 years to step up to the plate and fight for students. It's not going to take me 21 years. It's going to take me one day to step in there and let it be known exactly what I stand for. Um, I plan to fight for people. I plan to fight for actual working people and not tacitly, um, not passively co-signing things, not trying to ride other progressive party members' coattails, but because it's what I believe in. But because fighting is, is in my blood, it's what I do, uh, fighting for the little guy, being present, um, being somebody that actually recognizes what people need, not corporations, not an overinflated DOD budget, but what actual people need in order to survive and be successful and not just survive, but thrive, right? That's what our goal is. That's the American dream. And that's what I want to do from day one, not 21 years later. So you are, you seem very ambitious. So let's say you get elected even though it's going to be really difficult to get much done, especially because you're a lot more progressive and, you know, hopefully we can get a lot of progressives elected in 2018. But if you are elected, um, what would you say would be probably the top three or top couple of issues that you would probably prioritize? My top three issues would be off the bat, Medicare for all, universal health care, single payer system, push for single payer, awesome. push for Medicare for all, um, remove college debt. Because that is, that's an unspoken bubble. It only becomes a big issue when election times happen, right? So when elections are going on, suddenly it's all the buzz. But then after they're done, no one talks about it. And I'm dealing with student debt right now. I want to see relief not in 20 years after the bubble's already burst, but now. So that's my second thing that I'd fight for. And the third thing that I'd fight for is I fight for investment in green energy. 
Um, building up this green energy economy is going to create lasting jobs for people. It's going to create manufacturing jobs actually here in the state. So we won't just be assembling things. We're going to be building things. Uh, it's going to be able to, to bridge this gap that we're experiencing already, this people working two to three jobs just to make ends meet because we can provide them with, with good paying jobs. And you couple that with not having to worry about medical expenses um, and finally being able to be free from college debt. That's going to be a huge boon to the economy. So if I had to pick three things, those are the three things that I would I would chase with fire and fervor. And this is why I really want to make the case for descriptive representation. Uh, and descriptive representation, for those of you who don't know, just means getting people in Congress that look like American citizens. So, for example, we have, I don't know how many millennials we have elected. Do we have any at this point? Um, um, I think there's one, and I think she's 34. Five. She might be 32, but I'm pretty sure she's a Republican out of, I want to say Missouri, but I can oh, be of course. right now. <laughs> <laughs> because you're, you're saying things, you know, you're a millennial, I am as well, and I'm also burdened by student debt, and it, it really does. I can see how it harms the economy firsthand. I mean, how do you buy a house or a car? How do you pay rent when you have student debt that's so crippling? So, I mean, if you get more millennials in Congress then that's really going to make a difference in terms of other millennials. So if you're a millennial in the 9th District of Washington, don't just get out and vote for Sarah. Sign up. So on that note, uh, what can people do to support you? Because, of course, you know, uh, sending money is always one thing. So if you could let us know where we can do that, but also what else we can do to really try to help you uh, be successful. Um, so donations are a huge thing right now for me, especially because, like you said, grassroots is very hard. It, mm -hmm. it really is the hard way, but I have to say that that every donation that comes in, I know how important those dollars are to people because they're important to me. I just left work a couple of hours ago. So I, I know how hard people work for their money because I work hard for mine. And so those donations that come in are so much more meaningful to me than just taking blind dollars from corporations. And if you go to votesarasmith.com slash donate, that's where you can donate directly to my campaign. Um, I'm also looking for canvassing team leads. So we're already out in the field. We're already giving out literature. We're already knocking on doors, which is very exciting because we're getting started very early. That's great. Um, and if I can get more people to don to donate, uh, votesarasmith.com. There's a little there's a sign up button, and you can click on that, and then you can let me know if you want to volunteer. Um, I have some canvassing events coming up. My next one is on September 2nd in Bellevue. Um, there's a progressive women's potluck that I'm putting on at the house of one of my amazing volunteers. So you can RSVP on my on votesarasmith.com for that too. Uh, but those are probably going to be the biggest areas that I need help. I need some canvassing team leads and I need uh, always need donations. Right. And and I want to say the same thing that I say for other interviews as well. I know that it, it's it, we sound like broken records on here, but this is really if you don't want corporate money in campaigns, then you've got to pitch in and even a dollar. It sounds like it's not very much, but if a lot of people each send one dollar, then that can really go a long way. Now, one thing that I think is really important, Sarah, is I wanted to ask you about your state and the primary. Do you have, do you live in an open or closed primary state? Um, we live in the colloquial term is called a jungle primary. Hmm. So essentially, um, the ballots come out to everybody, and then the top two persons with the most votes are the ones that go to the general. That can be two Democrats, that can be a Democrat and a Republican, that can be an independent, it can be any combination of two, but it's only the top two that go into the that go onto the general. That's interesting. So how many people are running uh, in at least the Democratic side? Right now it's just me and Adam that hmm. have announced our intentions to run for this district. So Okay. Okay. That's 
<laughs> yeah, that, that's actually that's a really interesting primary. I believe in Oregon we voted on this a couple of years ago, but we ultimately rejected it to kind of make it a jungle-type primary. But yeah, uh, that sounds great. I think that uh, what you're doing is phenomenal. You're kind of paving the way for future campaigns, and I think it's just great. So is there anything else you wanted to say before we end the interview? Um, not really. If you have progressive candidates that are running in your area, uh, that are running grassroots, by all means, donate, volunteer. They need your help so much more than you could ever imagine. And the other thing that I want to tell people is everyone keeps asking me, what can I do to make a big change in my community other than just volunteering? The answer is simple. It is run. It is not as scary as you think. Once you put your foot in the water, you can swim, I promise just run. If you say, we need someone strong on school board who's progressive, be that someone. One of the biggest things that my husband said is if the ballot came today, who would you vote for? And I'm like, oh, well, it would depend who's on the ballot. He told me, be that other person on the ballot. So if you want someone who's progressive, if you want someone that's going to fight for what you want for, and there's no one on that ballot, be the person on that ballot. And don't be afraid. It's, it's doable. It's possible. It can be done. Exactly. And when we have people in Congress like Louis Gohmert, don't ever doubt yourself. This is one thing that somebody, you know, somebody was considering running and just, you know, I don't know if I'm I, if I could do it. We have people like Louis Gohmert in Congress. Anyone can run. It's it doesn't take much. Not to compare you to Louis Gohmert, of course, of <laughs> course, but to instill confidence. I think that's really important because what you're saying is very, very important. You've got to run. That's the only way we could really affect change is if we get involved. So, yeah, thank you so much for doing that, Sarah. Uh, loved having you on the program. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you having me on. I look forward to, to meeting up with you again soon. All right. Sounds good. Hey, everyone. So I'm here with Ron Placone of The Jimmy Dore Show, and he is here to talk politics and just bullshit with me. How's it going, Ron? Good, buddy. It's uh, it's good to be here. We, we don't do this enough. We've never, you know, I've, I've been... Uh, I've been behind the scenes when you've been uh, on on camera with Jimmy uh, before, but you know it's always been a one on one interview, so I've never uh, never been able to participate. Right, and, and you always you have a lot of really good insight. So like you'll be on the Jimmy Dore show, show and you'll chime in, and then I'll be like, yes, yes, you hit the point that I wanted you to hit. So it's all it's always nice. I think you have really great insight. Um, oh, I thanks, buddy. Your jokes are on point. Like we've got to we've got to say it. your jokes are absolutely on point. Um, so that has to be stated. <laughs> Thank you. It's very kind of you to say. Thank you. <laughs> no problem. No problem. So I kind of wanted to get your take on some political issues right now that are, um, you know, I, I know you and I feel the same way about a lot. But one thing that I wanted to get your take on, especially, was the DNC fraud lawsuit. I know you discussed this a little bit on the Jimmy Dore show. But yeah. um, basically, the the judge admitted that, yeah, it seems as though Debbie Wasserman Schultz did, in fact, rig the primary. Of course, I'm paraphrasing. Um, but there's unfortunately no legal ramifications. You know, th there's, there's no way we can get them legally, essentially. So this was my question for you. I wanted to know what you think the implications were for this. I mean, going forward, do you think we can expect more rigged primaries? Will the mere presence of the lawsuit scare the shit out of the DNC? Because I'm kind of torn, and I don't really know. Like, I kind of feel like this means more rigged primaries, but I wanted to get your take on this. Yeah, I would go for the latter. I, I think the biggest reveal out of this whole thing was the explanation from the DNC's lawyer, uh, which, you know, I mean, I, I don't have it right in front of me now, but I'm, I'm sure, you know, most people have read it and stuff. It, it, they basically said, uh, you know, we're not we don't have to do a fair and open primary. And, uh, you know, that's not what even though it's in our uh, you know, it's in our charter. But, uh, you know, we don't have to do that. 
And, I mean, that whole statement from that guy was just completely uh, fearless in a bad way. And, I mean, I, 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 made the, I made the comment on the Jimmy Dore show. I was like, I feel like when he was reading that statement, Tom Perez and Debbie Wasserman Schultz should have just been standing there behind him going like this <laughs> to, to the American public because that's what it was. And, and, I mean, that's the biggest... That was the biggest reveal in all this, and that's why I think that, you know, despite the, uh, despite the outcome as of right now, uh, that lawsuit was the success. I mean, it really shined a light on the fact that uh, they do not feel the obligation to conduct a fair and open primary. They don't care. It is in their charter that they're obligated to, which I think that that means if you give them money and you don't feel like you were given a fair and open primary, you should be entitled to your money back. Uh, you know, that's how that works in a similar situation, whereas, you know, if somebody says they're collecting donations for a person that's sick with cancer and that person's not sick with cancer and that person pockets the money, uh, that's, uh, they just broke a law. That's not okay for them to do that. Uh, so I, I think that was the biggest reveal. Of course, the corporate media is barely talking about uh, the lawsuit, or if they are, they're they're saying that it was just just nonsense and frivolous. Right, right. It, they're just it's not getting the amount of attention that it needs, especially after they made that comment, like the the whole smoke filled cigar or smoke smoke filled yeah. room with cigars or something. Like if they they said if we wanted to, you know, we could just go into a smoke filled room with cigars and hand select the candidate. I mean, that's not something you want to say if you're trying to get more political contributions and i know that when jimmy talked about this he said you know subsequently afterwards it seems as though they're having the worst fundraising months since 2003 um yep. and i can't help but think yeah maybe that has something to do with it besides all the other problems like they don't have a message and whatnot i mean we yeah. gotta talk about their message what is it better ingredients better pizzas papa john's oh wait no that's yeah it's a different which... slogan yeah, yeah, yeah. But that was a really good idea, though. You know, right now, the only thing that makes Democrats different than Republicans is that they're okay with uh, gay people. So let's steal a slogan from a pizza owner that is known to be homophobic. That's a great... They nailed it with that one. I didn't uh, even think about that. <laughs> yeah, and then, of course, there's Have You Seen the Other Guys, which is really, I mean... I, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm in a relationship and, uh, you know, it's still pretty new and, and, uh, you know, I, I think someday I want to get married and, uh, I think I'm going to have the DNC write my proposal cause it's just so like, yeah, have you seen the other guys out there? <laughs> I'm a fucking catch. Have you seen what else? I mean, come on. Have you seen them? Come on. It, I, <laughs> you don't want to, you don't want to be swiping again. So, you know, so, I know you might want something better, but, you know, not everybody has that luxury. You got to, I mean, Hillary Clinton said that early on there. Some Americans might want some, but you can't, like, settle. Settle. Yeah, you know, the thing about the slogan with the whole, have you seen the other guys? It's basically yeah. like a tacit admission that you're shitty. You know, it's mm. like, I'm shitty, but I mean look who's shittier they're sh they're they're shittier than us and you know that's something that's obvious i think that we all know that democrats suck but of course republicans are objectively worse by a lot of measures even though they're kind of converging around a lot of issues but it just it makes it makes no sense to how they can't get it you know what i mean like yeah they they come up with these weird mealy mouth bullshit slogans um, and it feels as though they're like, I don't know if they're stupid or they know and they just don't want to change. But at, at least if you want to fool people, you've got to have a good slogan and they can't even get that. So I can't help but chalk it up to both incompetence, but also them kind of being evil at the same time. 
Oh, yeah. I, I think it's a little bit of both. I, I mean, I think there's definitely a, a, a disconnect because they don't really know. I mean, just the whole – the other thing they did where they made their uh, donation letters look like a, a final notice for a bill. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Like that that happened recently. I mean, I mean, that's just like, yeah, we're 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 really in touch with the common people because we know the people that are fucking you hardest, uh, <laughs> and we and we feel more like them. Um, but uh, and, and then yeah, the slogan. I I, I want a quick other thing about that slogan, and this is totally true. The day that came out, uh, you know, over at the Jimmy Dore show, we you know we have our uh, typical days. We have our pre production meeting where we all bring different ideas and stories to the table uh, that we just kind of find on our own. We kind of talk them out. We put them together. We write some jokes. Uh, wham, bam, thank you, ma'am. Then we go in and record. And um, I saw that. I did not bring it to the table because I honestly thought it was an Onion article. Me too. Like, like I honestly thought it was fake. I was like, there's no way. And then, and then Jimmy had it. And he's like, yeah, can you get over this? And I'm like, are we sure that's? And then I was like, oh, shit, that's real. Yeah. That's real. I thought it was an Onion article. And I was like, ha, that'd be, if that was real, I'd totally bring that in today. And then, no, it, they were fucking serious. Yeah, <laughs> I literally just... thought it was satirical. Like, I thought it yeah. was a progressive that was trolling them and, like, I basically putting it forward, like, oh, this is what they would come up with. They're so out of touch. But it, it was yeah. literally this. Yeah, I, I think I even said that on my show. It was mind-blowing. It's like, how, how are you that stupid? Like, I know that they don't want to change, but the extent to which they're showing how dumb they are, too, I mean, it's... yeah. I, I don't even like I feel like I'm flabbergasted and I beat this dead horse like tons of times, but I'm still just shocked at how awful they are. And it's not to say yeah. that, you know, oh, well, I, the Democrats are bad uh, or worse than the Republicans, but they're just they're supposed to be like the reason why I'm more critical of the Democratic Party, at least more frequently. I don't know if it's the same for you, is that like I expect more from them, like they're supposed to be the liberal mm -hmm. party. I kind of grew up with them. You know, they're the first yeah. party that I voted for. So you you just expect more. And they keep continuing to disappoint me. The bar keeps getting lowered. So I really, <laughs> I don't know uh, what it's going to take. So my question for you um, with regards to their prospects is, so we, we, like we see, whenever you have a party in control of government, almost always in the next election, you know, there's at least some turnover. You know, maybe they'll pick up a few more seats. But I'm kind of thinking like 2018 is going to be a bloodbath. Are you thinking the same thing? It just seems like there's no way. There's no hope for them. You th a bloodbath like the Republicans are going to remain in power or a bloodbath? Yeah, I, I think the Republicans will remain in power. I mean, I mm -hmm. think that most likely Democrats might pick up a few more seats, um, probably just from like the progressives, like the Justice Democrat people. But like, I feel as though it's not going to be enough. It's not going to be a big enough swing. Um, and for me, honestly, my goal at this point is just to make sure that Republicans don't take back enough seats to where they can do a constitutional amendment because they're super close, at least in governorships, to where they can call yeah. for a constitutional amendment, which is terrifying. And if that doesn't scare the Democratic Party to get their shit together, then I don't think anything will because they can really rewrite the Constitution in any way they want to, which is really fucking scary, you know? So yeah. it's, it's odd to me. Um, but another thing I wanted to get your take on was... Uh, Donald Trump and all these turnovers in his administration. So, I mean, we there's just one after another. We got Bannon, we got, you know, Gorka, and before Bannon it was Scaramucci. Um do you think that we're leading to a Donald Trump resignation? Ooh, yeah, that's All right. Well, first of all, I I, I will respond the the 28 thing. I, I, 2018, I do expect a few pickups in the house sure. uh from the democrats I, I would keep my expectations as low as possible politically <laughs> they are doing everything wrong 
Um, I mean, they should be able to. It should be a bloodbath the other way. Right. I mean, the Democrats should be able to dominate, but they are doing everything politically wrong, even calling for impeachment and resignation of Trump. And I don't know why this is such a, a radical thought. Uh, morally, Trump is absolutely terrible. The guy has no filter whatsoever. He's a knee-jerk reactionary. Uh, and, and he's a, a pretty disgusting human being. Um, so is Pence. He'd be more subtle about it, yeah. sure. Uh, he'd also be more competent. And, and what's more dangerous, an incompetent psychopath or a competent psychopath that can get shit done? I'd go with the latter. Um, so, I mean, even just the whole, like, we got to impeach this president. Like, why? Well, it's a moral issue. Like, is it a moral issue? I don't know. In my lifetime, we weren't able to impeach a war criminal. Yeah. But we were able to impeach a dude that for getting a blowjob. Yeah. Uh, so I, I don't really put uh, impeachment on this moral pedestal. I think it's more of a political move. Mm -hmm. uh, and in this case, it'd be a terrible political move. Uh, as far as Trump resigning... I don't think his ego will let him do that. Right. What I think is, I don't think Trump's all that bright. Mm -hmm. But I do think he's pretty smart in a few areas. When it comes to PR, when it comes to uh, just, just political theater, um, I think he does okay. He does okay enough to be, you know, he won the presidency with it. Um, so I actually do think, and someone else like, kind of said this to me, uh, I think he kind of likes the chaos in the right. White House. And, and I think he kind of wants to continue that in some way, because I think at the end of the day, that's going to be his excuse for, like, not doing shit, basically. Yep. Like, like, I think he's just going to be like, oh, well, you know, all these people, they weren't competent and this and that. And I, I think he almost likes that. It, it's like an elimination game show. Because I think at the end of the day, that that's all this is to that guy. I mean, this is a guy that, that's never had to work for anything, really, a day in his life. That's had everything handed to him. Um, and this is a game to him, you know? It, it's, if the anti-healthcare bill would have passed, he's not going to be the one that's losing his health care. And, and, you know, I mean, I've had some peaks under the hood being in a place like Los Angeles uh, that I've never had before. And, and I think something that we don't talk about enough it's just that there's there's blinders that people with privilege truly have and i think that's the big divide with on within the left right now i mean you have the kind of elite left that are borderline one percenters uh and they really can't relate to the problems they just see trump as the bad guy and they're like well how are you not just angry at this bad guy and it's like look we don't disagree that Trump's a bad guy. Mm -hmm. We disagree on how to handle this because we don't want to see the bad guy keep happening again and again because the bar's on the floor now. Right. You know, I mean, we have a system. When you have two parties that are bought by the same people, a demagogue is inevitable. Now we got our demagogue. And if you keep going with this same broken system, you're going to get another demagogue every four to eight years. And they're going to keep getting worse and keep getting worse and keep getting worse. Well, Ron, I don't know. That sounds a bit harsh. Does it? Kid fucking Rock is running for Senate. <laughs> I don't think it sounds harsh at all. I think it's reality. And he's not the only Rock running. We have Kid Rock. No. We have The Rock. Right. Um, <laughs> uh, I don't. I don't know what other rocks. Rocky and Bullwinkle. Anything is possible with this That's state of <laughs> with this state of politics, right? Um, yeah, I, I think that what you're saying is it, it makes total sense. And one thing about a demagogue is that a demagogue is uh, like that individual 
it might be dumb like like he's dumb donald trump is dumb i think that nobody Mm -hmm. can really dispute that even his own followers but a demagogue at least knows that you can capitalize on economic anxiety and a lot of other things so like people are especially prone to radicalization during times of austerity during times of you know economic depressions and whatnot and so yeah there was this perfect storm to where donald trump was able to sweep in and and win the white house and one thing that i covered on my show recently i don't know if you guys saw the poll i think it was abc news and washington post i could be wrong but they did a poll showing that nine percent of americans think that neo-nazi and white supremacist views are acceptable and that to me was really startling because if you would have asked me how many people would say that, I would have said like, you know, maybe 1%, 2 at the very most. You know, I, of course we have people with subconscious racist views. That's that's pretty prevalent. But to just outright say and admit, yeah, I think that neo-Nazism is perfectly acceptable. That's something that I think is really terrifying. And part of it is radicalization. I mean, it's, it's something that just happens. I'm becoming more radical just in the opposite direction in terms of being progressive. I don't know if you feel the same way or where, you know, I'm moving further to the left maybe a little bit. I don't know if I should admit that, yeah. but it's true. You know, I just, I'm getting more and more angry. I'm getting more uh, disenchanted with the system. So you, you have to make sure that you have some type of alternative to counter a demagogue that can come to power. And the Democrats, they're not being that alternative. They're not being... This, the hero to come and save us. And really the same is true for like Turkey. If you look at Turkey, you know, Erdogan, he basically has been able to maintain power, not just because of authoritarianism, but because of the left-wing party, they just couldn't really get their act together. And so you're kind of seeing the same thing here. But of course, that's an oversimplification. But, you know, it just, it pisses me off that when we talk about how bad Democrats are, there's this, I don't know if you feel this way too, but there's this underlying implication that we implicitly support donald trump in there like you know you're not allowed to critique the democrats without the neoliberals saying oh well you must be supporting donald trump when in reality they're the ones who are really supporting donald trump by propping up this house of cards you know that is the democratic party that is going to collapse because they just can't get their shit together i mean how many months of bad fundraising can you have before People start getting their asses chewed out before Tom Perez resigns. So, yeah, it just seems as though they're incapable of learning, and they also don't want to learn because I think, you know, the answer is obvious. I'm not sure if you heard about the Yes Men. Uh, they basically trolled the DNC. Um, yes, that was beautiful. It was it yeah. was amazing because they said everything yeah. that needed to be said. So even Yeah, though, I love those guys. They're, they're great. And <laughs> they're even great. though they're trolling the DNC, like what they yeah. said was actually, I mean, it was it would help them win. So it's just yeah. oh yeah and, and and then the beautiful thing that they set up was eventually the DNC is going to have to like respond and be like oh no that that's not us that's totally not <laughs> everything they said was amazing but that that don't no that's not us that's right. totally not us but uh and and by the way I don't think you should you should feel bad about saying you're going further to the left I feel the same way mm-hmm. uh like I even I even tell my friends and stuff I'm like you know they say that uh. You know, there's that bullshit Winston Churchill quote, like 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 that uh, implies that as you get older, you go more towards the center. Right. And the opposite is happening for me too. Yeah. I'm getting further left with each passing year, um, and I'm feeling more disenfranchised. I never really felt like I am a proud Democrat. I always felt like I'm pretty left leaning, and the Democrats are the clearer glass, comparatively speaking, for me. That's mm-hmm. how I felt for most of my life. Um, I feel that way less and less with each passing year, uh, with each passing day, actually, at this point. Um, 
And I think that's the party shifting to the right more than yeah. it is me, you know. So, I mean, you know, in, in 08, I, I supported Dennis Kucinich in the primary. I, I knew it was, you know, I knew he didn't have a chance, but that was the policy I liked best. And I wanted the, uh, you know, I, I wanted the party to know that, right? So I supported Dennis Kucinich. And then I happily, you know, got in line with Obama. I, you know, I, I liked what he was saying. I, I considered him... Um, you know, center left. He ended up being center right at best. But you know, I considered him center left. I thought this is a good compromise uh, for now. It'll get us to a better tomorrow. Um, and yeah, I just feel like that's not really. You know, Bernie Sanders kind of blew the roof off the place and proved to us progressives that there's a lot of us. There's actually a lot of us, and there's a lot of people that connect with uh, a populist message. Uh, and they're all over the place, and they're in red states, and they're in blue states, and they're in rural areas, and they're in urban centers. Um, you know, we're not as far apart as we seem because the whole notion of healthcare being a human right in the richest country in the world uh, isn't some radical fucking idea. It's actually an idea that pretty much the rest of the industrialized world has already come around to. Um, so I, I think that we're in we're in a we're in a growing pain right now, mm -hmm. uh, where um, you know we have to ask ourselves some really critical questions, and um, you know the people that just kind of want to stay the course and play it the company way, uh, the very definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. And uh, every day, I'd like to think I'm not insane. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. So I think that, okay, I'm going to change my opinion a little bit because you kind of swayed me with the moving left. Even though I think we feel like we're moving left as we get older, I think that what it is is just the party is moving right and it makes us feel like we're moving left. But really, I mean, what we're talking about, it's not like it's just this fringe thing with the exception of maybe universal basic income for me. I don't know if it's the same for you. but um, Oh, I no, I favor it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, favor it. I yeah. kind of feel like... But I understand that's a long, you know, that's a long road. Absolutely. You know, we're not there yet. But Absolutely. with the way technology is going, I think it's inevitable. I think so too, yeah. But yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, no, uh, um, I just feel like all the policies that we're advocating for most vocally, I mean, these are things that a majority of the country now supports. Like Medicare for all. I mean, even a plurality of Republicans, according to some polls, support it. So, you know, I'm going to go back on saying I'm moving further left. I think I haven't changed. Everyone else has changed. So uh, I'm walking back that statement because it makes more sense. Although it is possible I'm shifting to the left or I'm just becoming more pissed. Something's happening uh, within me because nothing's happening in Washington, D.C., I guess you could say. I don't know. I think we're both becoming more disenfranchised yeah. as, a, as a result of the system failing probably more so than ever before in our lifetimes, at least. Right. Uh, or at least when we've been cognizant. You know, I mean, I, you know, I, I, was, I was very young when Reagan was in power. I didn't really know much about what was going on. I had other things that were concerning me, like where my apple juice was, you know. So, but, <laughs> I was uh, shitting in my diapers, you know. Me too. Me, me too. You know, so I wasn't really. And even during Clinton, I wasn't, you know, I mean, I wasn't really cognizant at that point. I thought he was just a cool dude that played the saxophone, right. uh, you know, because I was a kid. Right. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, I think it's we're more disenfranchised. But as far as where policies are, you know, I, I don't really, like, I, I favor single payer. I've, mm -hmm. I've favored single payer since I knew what it was. Right, uh, same here. You know, I'm anti-war. I've been, you know, I, I was at every anti-war protest in college because I was grossly opposed to Iraq. Yeah. Um, you know, I, all those instances, I, I favor a living wage. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> 
you're in the richest country in the world. If you work 40 hours a week at an honest job, you should make enough to survive. It's, it's End such of a story. simple concept. Yeah. End of story. And when they came up with a minimum wage, they were not like, we really need this uh, We really need this law in place so that high schoolers can have a little extra spending money. <laughs> no, that wasn't. It's not what it's there for. Yeah. It, we have a minimum wage so that it's enough money to live. That's what we mean by minimum wage. It's really a living wage. That's really what it's all about. So, uh, right. And statistically, so, yeah, that's just changed. not true. Adults, like with families, are working minimum wage type jobs. That's just that's the way the economy is. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, so yeah, yeah, yeah. In, in principle, I really haven't changed uh, much in uh, in since since I was a teenager. Yeah, I I think I would probably agree with that. I like how we're working this out like on camera as we're like, no, yeah. I'm moving to the left. No, actually, fuck that. I'm not moving to the left. Everyone else is changing. <laughs> it's their fault. Fuck it. <laughs> I'm not taking the blame for this. No, no, not at all. <laughs> I mean, there's a Nancy Pelosi video that we talked about recently. Uh, where we show her reading a better deal, she had this piece of paper in front of her, I'm still convinced was a Chinese take on menu, she just took notes on. <laughs> and and she's just she's just talking about these points as if she's describing what's in a grab bag for kids. Or or she's like, you know when you were in kindergarten you get one of those gift grab bags and they'd like tell you what's in it and it's obvious that like the adults hadn't heard of half the candy bars. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like they'd be like, This is a whatchamacallit like it like she sounds like that. But she's describing their fucking platform. It's like, what's wrong with you? Like, like you're so disconnected. She described how we're going to try to lower the cost of prescription drugs. Spoken like a true person that has no idea what it's like to feel strapped by the cost of your prescription. Right. Or to worry about the bottom line when you need to go to the doctor. She has no fucking idea. No clue. Um... We had Sally Boynton Brown on the show. There, I, I, I am going to name names. Oh, I yeah, just I remember that, yeah. We had Sally Boynton Brown. I mean, it, it was uh, cringeworthy. She couldn't answer basic policy questions. She didn't know. She didn't know how to answer basic. And she's like, I'm more of a strategy person, like, as far as getting people in. It's like, well, you can't answer a basic policy question. How are you going to inspire people to join your cause when it's like, how, how are we going to get people health care? Well, I don't know, but uh, I'm convinced that there's great minds behind that. Really? They don't have a fucking plan. Where are these great minds at? What are your plans? Do you support single payer? I don't know if she would know how to answer that question. She wouldn't. Um, no, she wouldn't. She wouldn't know how. It's like, what are you doing? It, it, I feel bad. She was a sweet lady. Very sweet lady. But it's like, what do you, you should, uh, you should like be at a nonprofit where they like give you two weeks to understand what their cause is and you have understood it and you know that you're for it. You should work there. <laughs> like you have no business. Like I'm, I'm not trying to be mean. I'm, I'm just saying like she had no clue. Chuck Schumer just seen, uh, he spent five minutes on MSNBC describing to the person that he understood how seats at a baseball game worked. Because I think he was so shocked that he wasn't in a box. He wanted people, oh, you know, they have these seats and you just you just sit next to another asshole. Did you know that's the thing? <laughs> yeah, Chuck, we've all been to a baseball game as regular people. You disconnected Yahoo. Like, I mean, it's like these people are parodies of themselves and they're they're elected. It's a Tom Perez couldn't speak for five minutes at a unity tour because no one gave a shit what he had to say because he had nothing to say. You know who did have something to say? 
Bernie Sanders. And you want to tell me people don't care about policies? People are showing up to see a guy with messed up hair who's 75 years old from Vermont. <laughs> He's not necessarily spelling out hip unless the year was 1971, but he has a message <laughs> that people are connecting with. People are hearing that. So, yeah, man, I mean, it's... um. The Democrats are a sinking ship. That's just the reality. Um, and, you know, you got two choices, and I'm for trying both of them. You either got to primary these people out and take over the party, similar to what the Tea Party did over on the right. Although, you know what they have that we don't have? Coke money. We don't have right. any of that. Yeah. We don't have any Coke money. Uh, or, you know, you got you got to try to break up this two-party system. And, and the one thing we got going for that, that's going to be a long road. Uh, but, you know, the one thing we got going for that is the most popular politician in the country does not identify with either party. I mean, mm -hmm. he, he's, he's doing everything the Democrats could ask of him. I don't know what more the Democrats want from the guy. Right. Uh, and they're still telling him to fuck off, basically. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I, I, don't, if I, was, I don't know what I would do if I was Bernie Sanders. I'd like to think I would wait until November 9th. Uh, and then and then take my ball and go home and start, you know, and follow draft Bernie. I, I don't know what he's going to do, but, I mean, you know, again, the idea, I mean, people are like, oh, that's such a, that's such a pie in the sky, the idea of breaking up the two-party system. Like, well, in other democracies it happened because it was inevitable. Right. So the idea that it could happen in ours is also just kind of uh, accepting reality, A. And B, like, what sounds crazier, keeping up with this? Keep it. Donald Trump is president. Yeah. Our system got us there. This isn't like everything was hunky-dory and, and some guy threw a wrench and shit. No, this was a long time coming, and it was inevitable. Again, when you have two parties that are bought by the same people, a demagogue is inevitably going to happen. And, you know, when people, you know, my cousin, uh, I have a cousin, a uh, rural Pennsylvania guy. I grew up in Pittsburgh, uh, you know neoliberalism has not hit him a home run at all you know he's a struggling guy he's got a couple kids uh you know went through a rough divorce whatever he was behind Kerry. he was behind obama identified as democrat his whole life he voted for trump and if you ask that guy why he voted for trump he's not going to tell you anything he likes about trump he's going to tell you how the democrats left him out in the cold because it happened my dad told me, my dad saw him at a wedding. He's like, well, why don't you vote for Trump? Just making conversation. He said, you know, I have no use for the Democrats. That was his answer. Dang. My cousin's not alone, man. My cousin's not alone. And he's in Pennsylvania. There's people like him in Michigan, in Ohio. You see what I'm saying here? Now, I do know that the reason Hillary lost was Jimmy's fault. I, I was uh, the yep. night that he... He, he built a wall around Michigan and Wisconsin so she couldn't get there. She was trying to get there. <laughs> Jimmy didn't let her in, and we were like, Jimmy, we got a bunch of shit to record. What are you doing? He's like, I'm almost done putting in the putty. You know, he used to do construction in Chicago when he was younger, so he was really good at it. He did it real fast. She couldn't get past that wall. But, you know, but I still think that, that, that the messaging has something to do with it, too. Right. And uh, it's not like she – this was her first time running. She was rejected in 2008. And I remember I wasn't very politically astute back in 2008. I mean I was, I was kind of coming into my own politically. I just started college and whatnot. And I really liked Obama. I liked what he had to say. Um, and I didn't like Hillary Clinton because I knew she voted for the Iraq War, which I was absolutely mm -hmm. against. Uh, and just policy-wise, Obama was more progressive. I also kind of grew up – my dad hated Bill Clinton – um, and she defended a lot of his policies, um, like welfare reform, you know, um, which which 
it directly impacted my family. So it's not like Hillary wasn't already a flawed candidate, you know, and then they, before they decided to just prop her up and shove her down our throat, she was already damaged goods and they decided to run with her anyway because they thought, you know what, if we lose with Hillary Clinton, that's that's better than going with Bernie and winning. That's that's what it you know that's mm-hmm. what it seemed like. The idea was, but I want to get back to because um like you you said you were naming names and whatnot with Sally Boyd and Brown. Okay, I don't feel bad being mean to these people because it's not like we're asking asking them really difficult questions. We're not coming up with this fucking like esoteric policy issue you know like we're just asking them what they stand for even the dumbest trump supporter if you ask them what does donald trump stand for they'll know they'll say the wall okay that that's still a policy technically you know so it i don't know it, it just seems like it's a lost cause and yeah i agree with you draft bernie really is the only and and justice democrats we have to try both ways but if we don't try something externally um or at least try to infiltrate the party i feel like you know waiting on the democratic party to change it's just, you know, it's never going to happen. So with Draft Bernie, the one area where I wish Bernie was more like Trump was I want him to be a dickhead. Like, yeah. back in 2016, like, Donald Trump, I mean, there were threats that the RNC would try to do some shenanigans. And they did, in fact, do shenanigans at the RNC convention in 2012 in favor of Mitt Romney against Ron Paul, for example. Not that he would have won, but, I mean, just shady tactics you can look up on YouTube and whatnot. But, um... Donald Trump, I mean, they couldn't really rig the Republican primary against him, even though they wanted to, because what was the first threat he issued? I will go third party if there's any, you know, if I feel like I'm not given a fair shot. If Bernie would have done that, I mean, even if he would have just bluffed, if he would have said, hey, if you guys are continuing to limit debates and whatnot, uh, I'm going to go third party. Even if he would have said that, um, I think if he would have said that, even if he didn't mean it, it would have made a huge difference because then you just guarantee that they lose. But at the same time, you know, you had a monster on the Republican side. So we know Bernie didn't want that to be on his conscience. But I think that he needs to be a lot more uh, of a dickhead, <laughs> to put it lightly. I think at this point, yeah. I mean, I, you know, I, I, I get why he played safe in 20, uh, you know, looking back, I, I, I wish he wouldn't have too. Uh, but you know, I get why he did. I Same get here. why he he didn't want to be axed out of the DNC entirely. On you know, like during the um, uh, you know, during the big events and so forth. I I, I do get that. I I didn't envy the guy. I wouldn't want to be in that position. <laughs> but uh, yeah. but but yeah. I mean, I I it's it's kind of time to take the gloves off. I mean, they they ran somebody that had more skeletons in her closet than somebody that runs a seasonal Halloween store, and they didn't give a shit. Uh, they didn't give a shit, and. It's just one of those things. And, and then, I mean, just the fact that we have the super delegates, that we have yeah. the electoral college, that, I mean, you know, whenever these people are like, oh, our de- Donald Trump is a threat to our democracy, we, we fuck our democracy hard enough on our own. Are you kidding me? Yeah. Like, what democracy? What, the popular vote winner's been screwed over, like, like about 40% of the time, two times in the past 20 years. Yeah. Democrats are silent about it. Oh, well, they don't want to... That would be a long haul, because there'd be a lot of people in red states that would be upset about something like that. Okay, well, guess what? Half the fucking country doesn't vote. Yeah. If you gave them more an incentive, like it was one person, one vote, and their vote truly did matter... That might incentivize a lot of people, and they might get behind the party that that stood for giving them that platform. So, I mean, my God, holy shit, why not? I mean, the one thing Donald Trump, uh, you know, when he says, what do you got to lose? I mean, that's kind of how I feel 
about about our entire system at this point. Like, what do you? I mean, let's try all the above because what do we have to lose? I mean, more of the same. You look at this this wasteland of a party, and and then uh, just this this demagogue and and his uh, and the circus behind him. I mean, yeah. I mean, that's all it is. I mean, the the whole GOP was just a was just a clown car going yeah. out there. Uh, their debates literally turned into a measuring contest, not just figuratively, yeah. <laughs> literally turned into a measuring contest. Uh, you know, I mean, all three debates, uh, you know, between Hillary and, and Donald Trump, I was confused why there wasn't an opening act of a guy getting kicked in the nuts. I didn't know why that wasn't uh, first and center. That was the quality of the content that went on in all three of those things. Um, so I, I don't really, you know, when people like put our system on a pedestal and, and hey man i'm not trying to be you know uh i love the united states right right <laughs> i really do it, it it's my home it's uh you know like there's a lot of great things about this big crazy democratic experiment that you and i are both part of we've done some pretty cool things we've done a lot of really awful things too by the way yeah. uh but we've done some kind of cool things and there's been some really cool cultural things that have come out of here uh you know i, I get to be a comedian for a job that's freaking awesome but you know <laughs> this is like we're going through some growing pains because yeah, like, in many are. ways as we know it we're a teenager and, and to not look at this stuff and be like okay this is fucking ridiculous and we can definitely do way better. Um, I think to not recognize that, I, I think you're the extremist. Right. You know? Like, right. Like, I think that, like, to, to just fathom this idea that, no, everything's fine, we're just going to keep going. People don't want to, I mean, Nancy, Nancy Pelosi, again, oh, I don't think people want to change a direction. I don't <laughs> think people want to change a direction in the Democratic Party. They're cool with losing. They think it's neat. Yeah. They think it builds character, <laughs> losing all the time. They're fans. Uh, you know, people don't, I mean, no, people want... A message people want a platform they're connecting with you see bernie in these town halls and i'm not trying to you know bernie's not perfect there's some things right. he's done that have pissed me off i'm not trying to be you know I, i'm a policy guy there's policies i like more than anything else but yeah. you know you see this guy go into rural areas and convince people that wanted to hate him that single payer is the way to go you see him doing that uh, that's a revolution that's mm -hmm. That's what a revolution is. That's a revolution of the mind on a grand scale, and 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 he has the platform to do that now. Um, and, and I, so that's why. I mean, I, I think we're at a very very fascinating time uh, that I'm stoked to be a part of. But uh, but I think it starts uh, it starts up here with people. Like it starts up here, and it, it starts recognizing that okay, we're at a critical juncture now. And uh, you know, and you know, I'm I'm stoked to go to D.C. for convergence. Um, you know, because I, I want to say, hey, I was I was on the side that really tried, and uh, hopefully, you know, this will be talked about years from now as the catalyst that broke up the two party system in the United States. Um, you know, maybe, maybe it will, maybe it won't. We don't know, but um, but fuck, man, well, what's what's the other option? Not trying? Yeah, that exactly. Sounds, that sounds terrible. Yeah, and boring. That sounds yeah. boring as shit. I mean, it's like, dude, like, let's let's give this thing a go because, you know, to be complacent is just dull. Yeah, and I, I kind of feel like we're on the same page there. Like, we, you, we might not necessarily know what the best strategic option is, but there are a variety of options, and certainly we know that not doing anything is just, it's not even something that we should consider at all. So, yeah, yeah. no, I'm with you. I'm absolutely with you because, you know, 
we are at a crossroads. I really feel like we are to where we're kind of just in this waiting period. We're kind of in the darkest timeline right now to where we're not sure where the light is going to, sh you know, shine through at the end of the tunnel. But I really do feel like it will come through. But then, you know, as history typically does, then it'll get shitty again and then, you know, better. But yeah, I, I really feel like we're at least lucky in that even though times are kind of tough right now, we're in this unique period where we can kind of shape the future, you know, and I think that that's really cool. And at least there's, you know, Bernie Sanders, he's given me hope just by showing how many progressives are still in the country. And that if there's that many people that think single payer is something that's non-negotiable, if there's that many people that want tuition free public colleges and universities, then I think the future is kind of, you know, it's looking bright in spite of, you know, the fuckery that we're dealing with currently with, you know, Donald Trump and, uh, uh as, uh, Jimmy would call him, uh, Donnie Tiny Hands. You know, yeah. it's just, yeah. <laughs> but yeah. So, um, I don't want to take up too much of your time. So before we go, can you tell all my viewers where they can find you on Twitter and, uh, wherever else? Yeah. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Ron Placone. That's, uh, just my name at Ron Placone. Uh, of course, you can catch me on the Jimmy Dore Show uh, over on YouTube, Jimmy Dore Show. And uh, I have a new podcast uh, called Five Chords and the Truth. Uh, it's just the number five, Chords and the Truth. It's about music and politics. So we kind of marry music and politics. Uh, you can find that over on iTunes or anywhere you get your podcast. Get it on your phone. Subscribe. That'd be pretty cool. It's a pretty new podcast. So, uh, so you know, try and get the word out on that. And, of course, romplacone.com. To find out when I'm coming to a city near you, we got some tour dates. I got some individual stand-up tour dates. Also got some tour dates with the Jimmy Dore Show. We're traveling more now, uh, and those are some real exciting, fun shows. So uh, yeah, check it out. Nice, I dig it. That's cool that you're doing your uh, your own stand-up now and whatnot. That's that's really awesome. Right on. And also, we'll we'll tease this here. Ron and I have a project coming out, hopefully relatively soon too. Yes. Uh, with some other cool progressives and whatnot. So look forward to that. So, uh, yeah, Ron, thanks for coming on the show. It's been nice talking to you. Of course, we will talk again soon. Thanks for having me, man. Well, that is all I've got for you guys. If you can't tell, I am losing my voice because I don't know how long this episode was. Uh, what, by the end, it'll be like, what, above three hours? I have no idea. It's it's so long. I've I've been talking for so long. <laughs> so it's time for me to rest my voice. Um, I will see you guys in two weeks because I'm going to be getting married and going on my honeymoon. Um, and I had to make sure I had the content for you guys coming. So this was a long episode, but thank you all for tuning in. Um, as usual, I want to thank my Patreon patrons and all of the supporters we have on PayPal who contribute to us either monthly or just one time, even sending in a dollar. You know, it's, it's, it's really, it's really nice. Thank you. Thank you so much. So, um, yeah, I'll see you guys later. Have a great day.